Hey everybody, welcome to the Lake Anna podcast. Today's guest is Andy Zeman. Andy is the Yoda of mortgage lending. Andy is a boss over at Novus Home Mortgage, a branch manager, where he leads a powerhouse team that funds all types of mortgage loans. Andy has personally funded over a billion, with a B, billion dollars in loans in his 23-year career. What's more, he actually looks a little bit like Yoda. All kidding aside, Andy is nationally recognized as one of the top in his field. I've known Andy for years, and he is a guru in finance and mortgages. He's one of the nation's top recognized mortgage planners. Andy is a professional coach for Cindy Ertman at her Mortgage Mastery Elite program. I invited Andy onto the podcast because Lake Anna was recently named by national media outlets as the nation's top spot to have a short-term vacation rental, number one in the entire nation. Financing these investment properties like these can be different and more complex than just snagging a mortgage for your primary residence. So I wanted to have Andy here on the podcast to discuss the ins and outs of financing investment properties like these here at Lake Anna. I also wanted to get Andy's take on the recent and controversial federal government rules that went into effect four days ago, which was Monday, 2023. These rules increased mortgage fees for people with great credit and decreased fees for people with bad credit. This new controversial rule has been a hot topic in the real estate industry over the last couple of months, so I wanted to get Andy's expert take on that as well. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Lake Anna Podcast. Andy, what's up, man? How are you, Grayson? I'm, I'm good. It's good to see you. You too, man. Thanks I'm for, happy to be here. Thanks, thanks for, for inviting coming me. In. How's Disney? Well, it is still there, and it is uh, as fun as I could ever want it to be, uh-huh. okay? Always uh-huh. opening up new rides. I got to ride Tron the other day, so... See, see we need to pause here. Since <laughs> m- most of the people out there don't know you, there's... there's one of the most important things that everyone needs to know about Andy Zeman is his insane obsession with all things Disney. Everything. <laughs> I mean, I do Zoom calls with this guy, and his wall is Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse. I mean, he is. And he drags his family to, <laughs> to, Dis- to Disney World like eight times a year. You guys, I'm trying to get a hold of him. Sorry, he's down at Disney. <laughs> <laughs> his his wife Shonda recently told us that he, he, at home you actually have these Mickey Mouse PJs that you have to wear <laughs> okay, at yeah. night. The cup, the Mickey Mouse cup, the water cup. And, oh, and she boy. said after eight p.m. at every night, everyone has yeah, to call you Mickey. That's right. Everybody right. calls everybody calls me Mickey. You know what's funny? I but do the PJs, man. That's, I do. I, I actually do, but that's because that's because they're Christmas jammies, and right. so I only Mickey, wear them. Mickey Christmas jammies. Yeah, and they're they're super soft. My wife got them for me. Right. I'm not. I was like, honey, a little much. And let me clarify. Well, she said that you wear something every night. You have special Mickey jammies that you wear. Oh, she is that's just not, should I not have? No. The the reality is that I am I am obsessed. I like the Mickey cup. I'm obsessed with my wife. Wife, and my wife right. is obsessed with Disney, she, therefore. Right. So there's therefore two, t- two types of Disney people, man. There's the people that have to go and the people that want to go. I actually really enjoy it. If you never adulted around Disney, it's a great time. It and- is. It's good. It's good. <laughs> but but for real, that. did that, before you met her, yeah. did you did you have the same love for Disney or did that come with with Shonda, no, I think it's fair to say it came. It came specific for the re, the resort, right? It came yeah, yeah. with her and with the family and the magic. But the re, but the truth is, I've always enjoyed amusement parks. I've I'm just a I'm just a giant kid 
Um, I, I'm the you same know? way. So for me, it's like, it's cool to get around and to check out. And you know, that it's just, it's a good place to check out a reality, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. big, it's a big fantasy world down there. So um, I think that's why I enjoy it all as much as I do. Then just seeing the joy on the kids' faces, you know? It is fun. Yeah. It is fun. Do you ever go to King's Dominion? I uh, have, Bush, yeah. Bush Gardens. Bush Gardens, King's Dominion. We go there. I grew up in Ohio. So we went to the sister, which was King's Island yeah. to King's Dominion. Yeah, yeah. So grew up riding coasters with my family and have a good time. And now, now I just take the kids on the spinny rides and some of the calmer right. coasters. Right. But I will say, I was telling you about Guardians earlier because mm-hmm. I'm very excited. It's the mm-hmm. podcast come on. I'm going to see number three here on Friday with the family. But the ride, Guardians ride in Disney, mm-hmm. epic. Best roller coaster really? I have ever been on. It's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. See, I always thought that Disney, it's like a great experience, but I always feel like if I want a good ride, I got to go to like Six Flags. or Kingston. Yeah, so, I mean, there's- So this ride, Guardians, is that good? Yeah, I mean, the carts spin 360 degrees. It's an immersive experience. You've got, wow. they're basically taking you through um, through the actual movie or part a cast of the movie. Um, I mean, to be in a roller coaster that has the actual car itself spin while you're going through it and changes your perspective, it's, if you get a little motion sick, probably yeah. not the ride for you. Yeah, I you got to ride it once. Okay, well, there you go. Well, Take I, your dram well, and look, well, ride look, once. Look, if, if I ride just a traditional roller coaster, even one that does flips, I'm fine. But if I get on the teacups, oh, the spinny, I'm I'm gone. So how would I be on the Guardians? Ride would it once, sick? take a Dramamine before, and then plan to sit down for about a half hour afterwards right. and just chill. <laughs> it's worth it's worth the experience one time. But you may be a little <laughs> nauseous. Okay, Ashley would be sick too. <laughs> Ashley would be the one skydive she did. Ashley got very very sick. Well, you shouldn't have put her in very, a, very in, a in a spin, right? <laughs> but it was fun. It was there fun. you go. <laughs> how is the mortgage industry? Now, how are things? Yeah, so it is, it's a tale of two years, right? I mean, yep. really, um, we're, you know, you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, but we're on the, we're on the opposite side of the pendulum from where we were in COVID, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Without question, COVID was the best of times, okay? Um, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it was the worst of times too, right? Mm-hmm, Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, speaking specific to the mortgage industry. Oh, yeah. You know, now we're on the other side of the pendulum. So um, higher competition, there's margin compression. You've got these things we're going to talk about today, uh, loan level pricing adjustments mm-hmm. that have come out. Yeah, the will. change, the sheer change that is coming about is really difficult. Plus, You've really got, you've got elevated purchase prices. You've got higher mortgage rates. As a result, again, artificially low. Now we've got artificially high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the reaction is, is things are just significantly harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done this for 23 years, you know, as of, as of this year, mm-hmm. without question. And I've been through every, I've been through all of the housing crises you could imagine that have yep, occurred, right? Yep, yep. Never once exited the industry. I'm the idiot that stayed in this stupid job forever. This is the hardest environment I've ever operated in. Right now. Yeah. And and purely it's because of lack of inventory, um, hardship of qualification, right? Because of the compression of rate increases. Uh, you've got inflation, cost of goods. So when sours. you say lack of inventory, you're talking about housing. You just, just to break it down for everybody listening, you're talking about housing inventory. The supply of homes is yeah. low. It's, it's in many places, it's below 50%. Of what of, of normal levels, yeah, of, of normal, normal levels, normal which is levels. which needs to be below demand in order to to allow for appreciation, right? And then you have right. the competition of, you know, th- the statistics are nationally, and and again, this is nationally, they're as high as fifty percent cash offers, mm-hmm. and you know, in our market in this area, so you'd you'd be better speak to this, but some of the MLS stuff is showing as high as thirty five percent of the offers getting ratified and closing are cash 
in the city of Charlottesville, for example, the number in first quarter was mm-hmm. almost 50% cash wow. offers. Wow. So now you have you have demand. You've got people that really want to buy houses that, you know, first-time home buyers, for example, that and, really want. And they don't have cash. Right? Well, they and they don't have cash. Compete. And you can't compete. And you've got margin. You've got you've got high. You've got higher rates than certainly we had during COVID. Right? Mm-hmm. We've got much higher rates as a result. House prices are higher, and now your competition is grandma and grandpa with cash. Right? How in the world do you compete? So so right. so many different levels. We're creating solutions to problems that we've never been faced with before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So other than that, so, it's great. So other than that, <laughs> but you're a champion. That's so why I got some time to do a podcast today, right. Grayson. Right? I know when I called you, asked you what you were doing today, and it was like, "Well, I'm just going to be mowing the lawn, yeah, and just pruning, pruning the daisies today. I don't have anything else to do." Um, no, but seriously, thanks, thanks for coming in. No, man, but but, but just to peel a layer back, I guess the the reason it's different and challenging right now, from your perspective, um, is is volume. It, it, would you say that that's one of the your the volume of loan applications coming into you is is would that be a challenge and then b i guess some people that have applied for loans they're not getting the purchase agreements because of low supply because of the competition with grandma who has the cash etc yeah so it's really more the latter there's still a lot of people like when when you know we track everything so i track mm-hmm. lead volume month to month yeah. leads themselves are only down 15 to 20% Okay. From from okay. you know not really from COVID times, but like we'll call it from you know an average time, right? They're mm-hmm. they're not down by very much. There's a lot of people that really want to buy houses. The hard part is is the competition and getting the people qualified because what you have is you have a disconnect, right? Mm-hmm. If you qualify for the home mm-hmm. that you want to buy, mm-hmm. your competition is so fierce in a lot of cases mm-hmm. that. You know, that legitimately, if they're not working with expert realtors like you and Ashley, for example, then they have a harder time getting in. There's just tricks that you know you need to use. There's methods, yeah. et cetera. So, so that's one struggle, right, is you got somebody qualified, but they're constantly losing out to these cash offers. Right. Or you've got the individual that comes in that can buy a house but can't find a house because their because budget the doesn't allow for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so to some extent our area is is going, you know, again, I think real estate is all local. We could look at national numbers as fine, yep. but the numbers in Arkansas don't apply to what we're doing. Numbers in California don't mean jack to what we do here in our area. Well, and what's interesting too is some of the numbers and, and the trends you're seeing in Charlottesville are very dissimilar to what we're seeing here at Lake Anna. Right. Yeah, it's just it's just, and mainly yours, yours is a primary home market. Ours is a, a largely a secondary home market. I mean, that's, that's changing now, but you're right. It really is local. It right. really, really is local. And that's what you have to, that's what you have to pay attention. And so, so, so the result is, okay, well, you've got to some extent, I don't know if the right word is gentrification, but you've got a lot of people that have lived in, let's call it the Lake Anna area, right? Louisa, mm-hmm. Mineral, et cetera. They've lived here their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're ready to buy a house. They've started a family. They're ready to get out, you know, or could be somebody that wants to, and they're living in mom and dad's basement, right? And they're ready mm-hmm. to get out, but they can't afford it. They right. can't buy the house. They can qualify for a home, but there mm-hmm. are no homes in their price range. Right. So that's that's the other part of the struggle. So that's what I mean by the hardest market. Plus there's then the the expectation from the consumer level, which is, People just genuinely, like I was talking about this last night, you know, they, they put our kids, like I have a, uh, my oldest kid right now is in um, fifth grade. Okay. She's learning intro algebra. Mm-hmm. So she came in and she's like, daddy, why am I learning letters in math? And I was like, in fifth grade? She goes, yeah, they start us in this thing called algebra now. 
And I said, I don't really know. We had a teacher in our, in our, in our living room with us, a friend of ours. And, um, so my wife was like, why are they learning that? Right. And I'm just kind of laughing it off. I'm like, well, it's just so they can, you know, check a box or whatever. Right. So a few teachers out there, I didn't mean to trivialize that, but that like, that's, you got to teach the curriculum. And then the teacher brought up, she's like, yeah, but we don't teach anybody in any grade consumer and personal finance. And the reality is, is the other part is this people don't understand because they've never been taught how mortgages work. Mm-hmm. What what to actually look for? What you you know what you guys watching this podcast? What you don't realize is most people out there, most companies, especially the big companies, they are marketing companies whose design it is is to sell you money. Mm-hmm. They're not there to guide you through the most expensive and 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 the most expensive asset you've ever purchased in order to take on the most expensive and highest amount of debt you've ever mm-hmm. accomplished. They're just literally there to try to figure out how to sell you a, a, a bunch of $1 bills. Their product. Yeah. Well, I don't know that anybody ever wants to buy $1 bills, but that's what our, our industry has really become very, very segmented. There's two methods of business now. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to get the consumer to understand the difference between the two because they're never taught that there is a difference between the two. And the first is you can be a transaction. You can be what we call the drive-through mortgage. You can go and you can order your burger and french fries or your 30-year fixed and you come out the other side and they forgot the french fries, but you're three miles down the road, so you're not going to turn around and go get your french fries. Right. You just sort of chalk it up until the next time and you're like, oh, I totally forgot they forgot my french fries, right? The other way is an actual consultative approach. It's to understand you know, what your goals are, how do, how do things that we're going to talk about today affect you long-term, short-term. Um, and so the real problem is, is that we're educating. So we're spending a lot of time, which is great. We're spending a lot of time educating people in order to help get them comfortable with the things that have occurred. Mm -hmm. But there's been so much change, Grayson, in the last year to two years, Mm -hmm. even post COVID, the people can't fathom the amount that our job has changed in 23 years. What I do today is completely different than what I did 23 years ago. But the process is the same, right? Mm-hmm. You still got to go through underwriting. You still got to get an appraisal. You still go to the closing table. So the steps are similar. It's just all the stuff that needs to be talked about and happens in between. And all of that, we were talking about the land, the landmines that exist, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. earlier. And, and so that's the other hard part is there's a lot of education that has to take place because most people don't ever get it. Yeah, yeah. Now, what is, yeah, I, I know you're, you're a, a team manager. You're a branch manager. But yeah. w- w- what is your... What is your title? Just lay it out in simple terms. You're a loan sim- officer. You're a mortgage broker. You're similar, just super simple terms. I like to call myself a mortgage engineer. Okay, that's it. Like I engineer strategies, purchase strategies for and refinance strategies mm-hmm. for buyers. Um, whatever that means, you know. Like if it's if it means I'm not the right fit, I tell you who is. I tell you where to go get the money. Yesterday, I had a gentleman. He he called me. He wanted a he wanted to go get a mortgage because he was going to try to buy another house, etc. I said, why don't you just go get an equity line? They're free. He said, well, why would I do that and not use you? And I said, because that's what I would do if I was you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't do a traditional mortgage. You don't need one. I would go get a free equity line and then I would just pay cash for your house six months from now. And he was going to use it to buy what? Just another house. He wanted to go move and sell his other property. So as a mortgage engineer, right, uh, you know, really I'm a loan officer. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a cool term. The reality is, is because it more accurately no, more reflects accurate. what we it do. Is. It is. Yeah. If, if you're doing it correctly. Yeah. 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 If you're, if you're not the drive through process, as you right. said, as you said. And that's it. I mean, that's, you know, we just help people make good decisions. That's what I do. And you said you've been doing it for 23 years. Yeah. You know, rub, way to twist the knife. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a team. Yeah. How, how is just briefly, how's the team work? So, 
Yeah. So everybody, everybody effectively is an extension of me. Everybody on okay. the team is licensed. They all 100% support my production. Licensed in, in what sense? In the mortgage industry. So okay. you have to be, you have to be registered, licensed, et cetera. Um, okay. now to do the work Bare, still. Does but, that mean they're registered loan officers? Yes, correct. Okay. So the bar still honestly is not set very high for our industry. That's yeah, the reality not, of it. Neither but, is mine. Yes, I know. Right. Uh, so there's another struggle, right? Differentiation. It's but, so many problems. <laughs> but the, the reality is be a lot higher. It, it should. Yeah, I agree. I would support that. Um, you know, but I have an operations manager and, um, her job is really making sure that all loan files close on time, that the actual manufacturing, once the sort of, if I'm an engineer, once the design is set and once the plans are laid and then, you know, the, the, the purchaser, the home buyer, et cetera, agrees to the strategy and, you know, has made their appropriate educated decisions. Um, then it's really my team's team's job to, to basically produce that. We'll call it a widget, for lack of a better term, they, right? They execute it. Yeah, they execute the actual strategy. So similar to, you know, some people call it doctor nurse, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't like that one quite as much because you really don't spend much time ever with a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. The reality is, is I do all of the strategy planning for our clients. We spend the time on the telephone. We we figure out most of the time I spend is on the very forefront before contract, typically mm-hmm. setting the stage, fixing problems, identifying problems. Um, and then the team will do, honestly, the team does the hard work, right? Mm-hmm. I do the imaginary stuff. I'm like a Disney, uh, 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 what do they call them? Uh, Imagineer, right? right. We, just, we, we with the client imagine the outcome and then there's somebody that goes in and actually builds the builds the product so they're doing the work while you're riding the guardian ride at disney yeah don't please i hold your, hands are, your hands are up and you're screaming <laughs> i'm screaming ah, <laughs> look. and christina's back in the office well she's screaming I'm just too. kidding i'm just kidding <laughs> no but i do i'm very fortunate i have a wonderful team and i appreciate you, yeah, you bringing do. them up yeah they, you uh, do they yeah. do make me they do make me look good a lot better than I your your, t- your team is awesome yeah, i will say that we've been you know, working together for for years, and your your team is is incredible. It's the best best that I've worked with yet. Thanks, best I that I've worked it. with yet. Um, but let let's jump in. Yeah. Um, w- one of the reasons, well, I wanted to have you on today to talk about two two topics. Um, one being, um, I, I don't know if you've recently heard, but you know, Lake Anna a couple of weeks ago was put on the national map again. This time by Fox Fox News Business. Um, they rated it as the number one spot to have a short-term rental investment property. They, they called it a beach house, and yeah, beach, but but short-term rental. And it was similar um, last summer. Some articles came out in Bloomberg and Fortune magazine that also put Lake Anna at the top in terms of revenue-producing passive income asset properties. Right. Basically, we're talking about short-term rentals. Sure. Um, so, a- as an agent here at Lake Anna, I've already noticed. A, a bit of an uptick in demand. People are calling. I have new leads and clients calling, you know, referencing it. So it's it's certainly placed a spotlight and a brighter spotlight here on uh, at Lake Anna from investors. And it, oftentimes when you hear the term investors, um, you, you, people assume savvy um, and professional. But a, a lot of investors are, are, are not that. A lot of investors are someone who they own one home elsewhere and they want to buy one of these short-term rentals in this great market that they're hearing about but they really don't know a lot about it yeah um so i wanted to talk i wanted to have you here to talk about that and maybe if you can just lay out some tools and tips and guidance for with those folks in mind you know people who are now paying attention to lake anna and who are thinking about you know looking for and potentially purchasing an investment property here yeah topic number one and then topic number two i'd love to hear your thoughts on this 
seemingly zany rule the federal government just put in place that went in effect just two days ago on, on May 1st, um, which seems to, in some ways, penalize folks at the, at the mortgage table um, and at settlement table. Uh, folks with with higher credit scores uh, in favor of assisting people with much lower credit scores to to get into the housing market. Um, but I wanted to talk about that as well. Um, but l- let's let's start with the the Lake Anna one. Yeah, um, perfect. So let's just you know setting the stage uh, here. Let's you know assume that I'm I'm an unsavvy beginning in investor, and here specifically I've got my my eye on Lake Anna. Um, you know, first, you know, I'm going to reach out. I'm obviously going to have, you know, a relationship with a local agent. Uh, and that's that's what we do in, in my business. But at the same time, and I'll let you speak to this, if not before, good idea to get in touch with, you know, someone like you guys. But l- let's walk through the process. What's from a finance perspective? We're, we're setting aside the I'm hunting for the property now. Right. Um, from a finance perspective, what's the very first thing that you'd recommend that they do? Um so this really this really comes back to just kind of a couple questions to ask right number 1 just from an from an advice standpoint i'd make sure i'm working with a professional right real estate agent and mortgage professional that one understands the marketplace right two actually owns vacation rentals mhm i mean so many times like i think about everything in terms of like how would i hire people right, right? and if you're not an investor and you don't own, and, and, and I would even argue if you don't own investment property, traditional investment long-term, and you don't own vacation rentals, I mean, maybe you don't even, I know plenty of mortgage people, for example, and realtors that don't even own their own home. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't go to a financial advisor who has less money than me. Right. I wouldn't go to a CPA that pays a higher net tax rate than me. Right. So I think, you know, I think the first thing is, is get armed with the questions that you really want to ask, because you're about to make a really, really, really big, important decision. There's a lot of money on the table. And let's face it, I've been doing Lake Anna Homes here now in in this vacation rental environment for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about cheap houses anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a time where you could get a really nice place for a very modest price. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Under, under I, a million bucks. Yeah. Get a I mean, nice waterfront house. Yeah, exactly. Not, not anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're not no. talking about chump change here. Yeah. So, you know, you have to obviously measure where your advice is ultimately coming from because I can a hundred percent tell you not all advice is created equal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then Agreed. assuming that you make those is questions, you're comfortable with your decisions, who you're working with, et cetera, you really need to think about the, the use of the property. Okay. So mm-hmm. number one, if you have a CPA, talk to the CPA about some important topics like what's their recommendation for usage in order to classify as a second home? What's the, what's, you know, how much are you going to use it versus how much are you going mm-hmm. to rent it? Mm-hmm. But from my standpoint, right, assuming that you meet all of the, the general requirements, let's call it two to three weeks usage out of a year. Okay. That's, usage, that's usage, usage meaning home. personal usage. So if you're the buyer mm-hmm. and you're going to occupy your Lake Anna home two weeks out of the year, you're going to do a, a winter trip and a summer trip. You know, a lot of our people say you live in Northern Virginia or somewhere close to that Richmond and you're, you're coming in for a lake house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Close enough to manage it, close enough to do all the things you want to do, mostly close enough to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can treat it as a second home. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that second home would give you a significant cost improvement mm-hmm. because primary and second home for the loan level pricing matrix that we'll talk about later used to be almost identical. Well, now it's not. Second home and investment property are priced the same. So just understand, 
When you say, and let's just pause so everyone's following, when you say cost and pricing, what do you mean? I mean, I mean rate. So everyone understands interest rate, interest rate. Okay. Everybody understands that. I think that an investment property has a higher rate than a primary residence. They let's assume they don't lay lay that out. So this is my first time purchasing an investment property. So you're telling me it's different. It is very different. And you, and you would want to be prepared that if a primary residence rate is, and I'm going to, this is completely hypothetical. This Mm -hmm. is purely for illustration. So, If a primary residence rate is 6%, mm-hmm. an investment property rate is probably going to be closer to 7 and an eighth, okay. maybe so 7 and a quarter. So it's more. Yeah, it's about 1% more. And so when people go online and they start using the online calculators, they're putting in interest rates that they see advertised at wherever, right? Mm-hmm. Costco mortgage. Okay, don't go to Costco for your mortgage. I think they stopped actually, but go to Costco mortgage. You can okay. get some good steaks there. You can get good. That's where I get and my steaks. They have a nice right. Columbia jackets. They do. Well. Actually, I saw some Disney merch mor- there before. Not, mortgage. not yes. mortgage. It's not good. That's where you got your, PJ, your PJs. <laughs> exactly. Mickey Mouse PJs. That's right. So, so there's a cost difference. Now, it used to be that a second home, like when I say used to be, I'm talking early 22, mm-hmm. second homes would be priced as rate wise, maybe six and a quarter if primary was six. So just but a little more expensive. Just a little more expensive. A secondary home. That's a second home, correct. Now they're the same. Second home and investment property, you can expect for the most part across the board virtually identical rates. Okay. So does it require a more savvy investor? No, but it requires an investor, a, a, an individual that is setting more realistic expectations. And here's the important part, or making decisions off of realistic expectations. Okay. The other important part to know is, is that it impacts cash flow dramatically. And so when you- Impacts my cash flow. Right, as rate a, impacts okay. cash flow, right. right? So the higher, meaning the higher the interest rate, it's the higher your monthly payment, yeah. paying it off, which chews up your otherwise the money that would have been coming to you right to offset the expense it means you're probably sure. on the hook for more of the actual dollar right. so and right. then and to that end um the advantage to second home versus investment property because a lot of people ask me they're like well if it's the same general rates why do i do second home versus investment mm-hmm. and the answer to that is because you can borrow more money of the property value for example a second home you can actually borrow up to 90 percent of the purchase price Okay. An investment property, per the guidelines, you can borrow eighty-five. But I'm here to tell you, if you're if it's an investment property, you have to plan seventy-five percent loan to value, which means twenty-five percent down. So it's a big number difference in down payment potential between the two. Okay. So just to summarize what you said, just to make sure that that everyone's capturing it, one of the key differences between secondary home and investment property purchases is the amount of required minimum down payment. Yes. As a secondary home, it, your down payment can be as small as 10%. 10%. Whereas if it, if this is cla- if this property I'm going to buy is classified as an investment property, then you're talking in effect 25% is is what you need to be planning for. Right. Now, h- how do those numbers compare to just a first home mortgage, you know, my primary residence. Great Those are down in minimum what right now? Just you, for convention. If you're a first time home buyer, you don't have to have any down payment if you fit certain income requirements geographic. Right. But if the you number fit into a certain box you could have zero or conventional three percent, five percent. Three percent is kind of that number that you'd think of like, okay, I am a first time home buyer. I don't I don't own another house. Mm-hmm. I never have or I haven't in the last three years. What's the minimum down payment I have to have 
if I don't qualify for a zero down payment program? And the answer is 3%. Okay. Okay. So, so it's 3% compared to 10% or 25%. Correct. And I know a moment ago you said, go talk to your accountant, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. To determine which box my use is going to fit into, whether it's going to be secondary home, just 10% down, or investment property, 25% down. Right. But can you generally talk to that and I think you might have started to a minute ago but I can fit into the secondary home box mm-hmm. and have the lower down payment if I'm using it some yeah Is exactly right couple couple three weeks um, um, you know yeah a couple weeks couple weeks out a, of the a, year a year excuse me correct yeah. couple weeks out of the year which I mean legitimately if you're buying it as a vacation rental the chances are really really good that you actually want to visit the home Sure. Otherwise, you're going to buy an investment property. You're going to look at a a true investment property. You're going to look at a completely different set of variables. A second home vacation rental, you're allowed to have a little bit more emotional attachment to that house because it's not just purely an investment. Mm -hmm. It's something that you and your family are likely going to enjoy. And what we've seen with a lot of people that have entered this marketplace is they've said, look, I'm kind of fed up with the with the the potential of a rigged equities market. Mm-hmm. Okay, the people that make money are always making money. For some reason, it feels like my accounts never really go anywhere. They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. I'm sick of it. I want to have something that I can go enjoy that's a roof, that's not just an investment. It's something that our family can actually build some memories in. You're, you're comparing investing in the stock market yeah, yes. which is which has been very volatile the last you know twelve twenty four months versus you know a real estate investment. Right, and so some people say I'm willing to segment. I'm willing to I'm willing to come up with some money and right. make this as an investment. Also because I know that I'm going to be able to enjoy it with my family. So yeah, they yeah. so they move some money over. Right, they pull it out of the market or they or they use cash they had or right. whatever the tool is. But the reason to talk to the CPA is because you know traditionally two weeks out of a year. And then the rest of it open up for, you know, for vacation usually Mm -hmm. is fine. It'll classify as a second home. But here's Mm -hmm. the real reason you want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So there are major differences in tax benefit that are attached to both. And again, the asterisk here is consult your CPA. I'm just a dumb loan officer doing this for 23 years. Yep, yep. But the reality is, is that as a second home, if, for example, you have a mortgage-free home in, Mm -hmm. you know, wherever, let's call it Northern Virginia, you got a Mm -hmm. mortgage-free house. Well, you don't have any tax deductions. You're not paying any interest. Congratulations right. to you. You own your house free and clear. Problem is, is but. that you got a big income and you're getting hammered. So when you go buy this house, if it's a second home, and let's say there's two working individuals within the household, mm-hmm. that could be the difference in you exceeding what's called your standard deduction, which is probably what they would claim anyway, which is just the IRS's relative line item gift to you to say, mm-hmm. I don't know, you probably have some expense during the year that would normally be tax deductible instead of burdening our you know team with the expenses and receipts. We'll just give just, you this much. We'll just give you this much. It's a gimme. Yeah. So I think for this year, it's like 27000 and some change for a married couple. Right, right. Okay, well, if you buy a million-dollar vacation home and you put $300,000 down on it, just use a general number, mm-hmm. you know, let's say you have a $700,000 loan and you're borrowing your money at, again, completely hypothetical, let's say 6.5%. You're well going to exceed the $27,000 because your property taxes, your mortgage interest, all those things become deductible. Mm-hmm. And so if it classifies as second home, then you get the opportunity to take that interest deduction and property taxes against earned income. It becomes part of the – in excess of the standard deduction, mm-hmm. right? Well, then there's a whole other classification of tax deduction, and this one really involves a CPA. We've mm-hmm. talked about this before. But – if you classified, for example, or you worked on classifying yourself as a qualified real estate professional, mm-hmm. and you can look up all the term terminologies, et cetera, talk to your sure. CPA about it, 
and it's an investment property, well, then you have the opportunity to actually take the losses from the property, including depreciation mm-hmm. against earned income. So there's a lot other there's a lot of other rules, but I will say this. This is the reason that you want to have that conversation with the CPA. The wealthiest people that I know, the people with the most cash, with the most actual money, mm-hmm. are all in real estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, or they're or they're tech giants and they created money, right? But I don't know Bezos and I don't know Zuckerberg or any right. of those other guys. I know them all. Just the big well, clients. That's why I'm hanging out with you. I can introduce. You. <laughs> but the reality is, is that, and it's not because the real estate itself provides all the cash flow. It's because the real estate shelters the income. Yeah, there's there's major tax benefits. There's so that's major, why you talk major to the CPA. Tax benefit, and yeah, yeah. And neither of us are CPAs, and and none of this is tax or legal advice. But just from our professional and personal experience, I own investment properties. You own investment properties, and the the benefits are are incredible. The benefits are incredible. It, yeah, it really is true. But y- your point is there. The point that you're driving home here, just so everyone's picking up what you're laying down, is there are there are tax benefits. Um, to take advantage of by going with, you know, having your property classified as second or investment. Right. And it's situationally different for everybody. Everybody's mm-hmm. circumstances are different. Sure. So the conversation, the, the to do proper mortgage planning, right, to be a mortgage engineer, we need guidance from the person that's managing your taxes. We We would want guidance from people that are also managing, directionally managing assets that you have, investment mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. We manage the debt. You manage the real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Not 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 actually manage the real estate, like when you own it, but like right. manage the the purchase scenarios, right? Right, right. So the other the other thing um, that I'd do if I was purchasing a second home or exploring second, and and we do, we own a vacation rental. Um, but the other part is I would come up with a budget, and the budget is how much conservatively on a monthly basis am I and my family willing to contribute to owning this house Mm -hmm. because the mistakes that I've seen people make, and I mean, it's been few, but the mistakes have been when they don't really think that they're going to have to pay anything. And they think that it's going to be a hundred percent cash flow positive. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is it's not. And if you go in making decisions appropriately and you say, okay, for two weeks of vacation out of the course of the year, we would normally spend, I don't know, let's make up a number. Let's say Mm $10,000. Okay, well, if you just simply want to replace what you would normally spend, well, then your number is ten grand, which breaks down to about I don't know eight hundred and fifty dollars a month that you'd be okay mm-hmm. carrying the expense. So then, when when you show up at the property, Grace, and you show them a home, and we start running numbers and we start running projections based on rental, or we pull rental records for the last two years, what we're going to look at is, well, when we take a cash flow analysis, which is something we create for all you know for all of our clients. When we create a cash flow analysis and we look at what that property is with maintenance expenses and management fees and, you know, all the the repair costs that exist and, you know, the mortgage expense, all of those things, vacancy, how much are they really carrying? So because because there is an expense, you'll have months that are that are way plus, right? I mean, during the summer months and stuff down at the lake, for example, you'll carry uh, you know, way positive cash flow, mm-hmm. but it's cyclical and it'll, mm-hmm. you know, it'll work out. So you just, you just need to have a budget on a monthly basis that you know is your conservative figure that you can't drop below that you're willing to contribute. But the biggest mistake is assuming that you're forever going to get a hundred percent cash flow. Will you? Maybe. Who knows? And that'd be a Crystal wonderful, ball. that'd be a wonderful gift to have, but you should go into it with the best worst case expect 
expectations. Okay. And, and so are you talking about expenses like, you know, maintenance and things like that? Um, or are you, are you talking about just approach it conservatively, just, you know, not assuming best case scenario all of the time? Well, really I'm talking about both. So when we run our cash flow analysis, what we do is, is we formulate just, and again, I have, I have some of these records because again, I, I own vacation rentals, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have it, I have numbers that I know work. We have tons of numbers from out at the lake because we've mm-hmm. done tons of houses. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, is we sort of know what the expenditures are. I mean, mm-hmm. some years there'll be a little bit less, some years there'll be a little bit more, but you've got utility costs. Nobody wants to go stay at a house that doesn't have dish network. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to go rent a house that doesn't have internet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and you better have the lights on. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you got a power bill. So these are all things that then get incorporated. And those are records that we can get, right? Mm-hmm. You can access some of those records. Yeah, you, you can, can find get, out what you they get are. a lot of them from the sellers. The sellers will Correct. a lot of them. And that's where point we is include all of those. Don't don't paint an overly rosy picture going into it. No, and I don't think I don't think we need to sabotage it either, right? right. But we need to be right. realistic because the worst thing I could imagine is we help somebody get into a house. You help somebody get into a house, and they make a telephone call, and they go, "Wait a minute! I thought I, I thought this thing was going to pay for itself. Why am I writing a check for twelve hundred dollars a month, and I haven't even had any maintenance yet?" Right. Well, you should probably know if that's your worst case scenario. You right. should probably know before you get into it, and then just be comfortable knowing that that's your cost for vacation. And yes, we can run after tax benefit and some of those other numbers in order to help defray some of the cost, right? Because again, if you're getting a tax deduction for the home mm-hmm. and you're in the 35% federal income tax bracket and you're writing a check for 1200 well, realistically, the government's going to kick you back 35% of what you're writing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we may be able to figure that part of it out and help narrow the gap. But those are things that you need to be aware of. And those are things that you have. most of the people that I talk to, they come in unaware that that's a number they should have been talking about. And as a couple or an individual buying the house or whatever, a family, if they can get on that page prior to going out and falling in love with a house, then we're not trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Yep. And you yep. have better expectations for what to look at because we've helped arm the client with better expectations of what price point do they really need to be in and what type of cash flow should they be expecting. Okay. Okay. So backing up a bit, you know, step one, mm-hmm. finding the right professionals, you know, finding someone, you know, who is, you know, on the agent side, someone who's hyper local and doing lots of business there, owns investment properties, and then same on, on the lending side. Yeah. Um, you know, step two sounds like, you know, you're recommending chat with your CPA, you know, about what's going to make most sense. Um, step three, identify your budget and be conservative. How yeah. much, how much money do, do you want to spend? Right. Okay. So we're there now. What's, Can, well, let me interject one thing, please. The second number, cause there's two budget numbers when you buy a house, one is payment and at mm-hmm. a vacation rental, we code that mm-hmm. as as how much are you coming up with monthly average? Payment is your monthly payment. Monthly payment. And your down payment. The second one is what we call cash at close. Gotcha. That's how much money are you willing to invest in that home to make it yours. Mm-hmm. And that's and and you just need a, you know, with a good mortgage professional and a good realtor, all you need is two cumulative numbers. Yeah. If somebody gives me, uh, you know, a $100,000 cash out of pocket goal and a no more than $2,000 a month cost offset goal, we can hit that number 99.9% of the time. They might not mm-hmm. like the house budget, but we can reverse engineer that mortgage to fit both of those budgets. Right. And and the client doesn't have to be focused on those details. It can really be focused on the big thing. And to your point earlier, where do people start? Like nobody starts with me. 
honestly, why would anybody want to start talking about borrowing a ton of money and paying a, nobody wants that. Everybody wants, like I'm the, I'm the idiot to pick the industry I did. I should have been a realtor so I could talk about all these great dreams and these houses and boats and all the fun stuff, right? The reality is I got to talk about debt. So I'm a necessary evil. But the fact of the matter is, is if you're going to get sticker shock, right? Some people watching this podcast, they call Grayson and they say, Hey, how much does a lakefront house really go for at Lake Anna? And Grayson shells out a number, whatever that is kind of average purchase price to get what they're looking for. If that shell shocks you and you just, okay, that's probably the right place to start because mm-hmm. if what you want carries a price tag that you are just flat out, no matter if you qualify or not, unwilling to pay, mm-hmm. that'd be the right place to start. Right. It's not usually me. I would love it if they did, but the reality is I got to talk about debt. Nobody likes that. Yep. Yep. So. Well, uh, you know, and that from our experience, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, come first and, and you know, we start talking about specific properties. And, and one of the first questions I ask, yeah, unless they're a cash buyer is, you know, are you, have you had a conversation with an Andy yet? You know, yeah. are you, are you pre-approved? Yeah. Um, because that will obviously dictate your home search. So I, you know, where you're going to be searching. Are we going to be searching at this level or are we going to be searching at this level? Or are we searching at this level right now and we're wasting a lot of time because you can only qualify here, right? So that's why I always encourage, you know, my clients to get in touch with, you know, an Andy Zeman as soon as possible. So so we're 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 target fixated in the right place and we're being and we're being efficient. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Often they end up, you know, with us, you know, starting right. with us and then, you know, I kind of gently try to push them <laughs> like, oh, in your, like, your direction. Like, no, 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 direction. no, 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 I don't no, want, no, no, I don't no, want, but, but you know what? You got to explain it to them. They say, well, you know, we haven't found out, we haven't found a house yet. Right. You know, why, why do we need to, you got to explain it to them. Well, you know, there's a qualification <laughs> and there's a lot of strategies that goes into this and these guys are good. So you should be talking to them early, but so at, at what point does, you know, do you recommend just, just does the pre-approval process, you know, kind of fit in here when, when, well, so, so I'm, I think that the way that we run things is probably a little different. I believe it's the right way. So our pro and I, so I can speak to that and I can speak to what I did before this, when I was trained to be a, a loan officer, when I was first trained to be a loan officer was like, okay, great. You got somebody on the telephone, get them pre-approved as quickly as you can get their, get their income, get their assets, get their credit report. Consumers hate to have their credit pulled. So get them locked down early in the stage. They won't right. go shop. Okay. That's the way it originally started. And then I grew up and what I realized is that's not how I make decisions. Why in the world would I, would I do this? I'm, I'm fighting with a consumer in the beginning and all the mortgage industry is fighting with the client to get them to do something that they don't want to do. They don't want to have their credit pulled. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we start ours with a conversation and it's a conversation with me. It's not a conversation with a, with an, and while I love my team and I've got a phenomenal team, the reality is, is that I'm the one with 23 years in this business. I'm the one that owns the vacation rentals. So I'm the one whose name is going to be on every single document that gets signed, regardless of who pushes a, you know, a paper around or does a verification, et cetera. So I think the right place to start is a conversation. It's to ask a lot of questions. It's not just an interview of me. Like legitimately, I'm the idiot that got into an industry that doesn't pay me by the hour. It pays me when I can help people make good decisions and get them to the closing table. And so to do that, we have to start with an education. What do you know? What do you not know? So rarely, I'm going to be honest, rarely does it start with, um, or even in the first call, turn into, great, I collected name, address, date of birth, social security number, we pulled a credit report, here's your pre-approval. That can happen. It can happen as early as an hour. But But usually that does not happen. No, it's usually a a conversation. I mean, we're talking about people, especially on the vacation rental side. What their goals are. 
what their experience level is. Right. And what information do they need to know? Are their goals realistic or unrealistic? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to be there to pop somebody's bubble, but I'm also not there to waste somebody's time. And so if they tell me that they're looking to spend no more than a thousand dollars a month and they want to go buy a half a million dollar house at the lake and they have 5% down, we know Tough. we know that we've got some unrealistic expectations. Something's right. going to have to give. Right. So that's really the right place to start. Is it's just designed to interview. And during that course of that conversation, whether it's you know whether it's me or it's some other person that does what I do or a realtor for that matter, the reality is is that you're going to get a really good feel for whether or not they're actually going to serve you. Can can you work in that environment? Maybe you don't like our style. Maybe you hate my blue shirt and you don't want to. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not cool, but you know what I mean. They don't like Mickey Mouse. Or they don't like Mickey Mouse. I know. It could be. It, it could happens. Be. It could be one of those people that goes to Disney because they have to. So, But that's that's the idea is if it starts with a conversation, the goals can be identified and then information can be pre- presented properly. Once my first, you know, and I think this is the right way to do it. Once the first set of information is provided, like what could this look like? Mm-hmm. Then the consumer really knows the buyer at that point knows whether or not this is realistic for them. So what I believe in is, so I believe in that first call, understanding ideas, presenting some really broad spectrum. Um, in, in, uh, there's a report technology that we use. Actually, we'll get into it a little bit later. Mm-hmm. That'll present some of the information to them. Mm-hmm. And usually, Grayson, here's the other problem. Almost always, I only have one of the potentially two decision makers on the telephone. Yeah. So the truth is, is that one, if they have to repeat everything I say, not maliciously, they're going to screw it up. Right. And two, they're going to go home and the significant other associated with it, the other decision maker is going to tell them that they're crazy and they don't know what they're talking about. So what we then do is we use some report technology, and this is the way I think the industry should be done, to present information so both of them can watch it in an impartial environment. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I and any other mortgage person shouldn't be on the telephone while the, the decision makers are talking about their goals and their dreams. Right. They need time to just talk right and so giving people that freedom gives them the opportunity to make those decisions without what the industry would call the typical hard sell so if anybody's pushing for an application fee and a credit report etc on call one hang up and call somebody else yeah. but yeah. look up their number they've probably done the business for the last two years and before that they were nothing wrong with it but they were you know they were selling insurance and that didn't work and before right. that they were doing something different so just let it be about your goals. So you, so it sounds like what you were driving at is there's a there's an initial conversation, and then you present to them some type of a report or video, something yeah. that they can take home, and with spouse, significant other, co investors that they can review and digest. Yeah, because on their own timeline, yeah. their own schedule, yeah, and then see if they like it. And in that information, you're basically you, you have received from them what their goals are. Mm-hmm. And you've talked to some of the basics, you know, through the basics about their income and, and yeah. et cetera, the, you know, the different levers. Right. And then, you, and then you are drawing the box. This is here's what's possible. And here's what, roughly what it would probably cost. Yeah. Make, and, it, make and, a decision. And here's multiple formats that it could look like. Right. Here's okay. multiple ways to do it. Okay. Now, go talk about whether or not you actually are interested further. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of conversations that everybody has had with. I mean, it doesn't matter what industry it's in, right? It doesn't It doesn't matter what industry. Right. You've had plenty of conversations with somebody that does something the equivalent of what I do, whether it's an investment advisor or it's a, you know, a life insurance individual or it's cars or it's real estate, whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. And the worst experiences are the ones where you're not given time to think of and process the data. And they're pushing. 
Yeah, and they're and they're pushing, and that's yeah, that's 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 something that we also pride ourselves on not doing is just pushing. And and I find that people, it's such, it's such a better experience for people when you don't try to cram something down their throat. Like you I said, mean, you, you you give them the data, you give them some space, and you give them some time to think about it. I mean, I, it's, it's maybe, better service. Well, right, and I just think about I just think about how much I dislike it. Yeah, right, and I'm like, well, if yeah. I if I yeah. if I dislike it, and I like Mickey Mouse, you know, pretty easy going guy. Um, other people probably really dislike it. So it just, it just feels better. So, you know, let's say that, you know, I, I, I'm the guy who, you know, I see this report on, on Lake Anna, you mm-hmm. know, I reach out to, um, Ashley at the lake, um, and say, I want to make this big, you know, purchase. I've got my eye on a 1.5, $1.7 million. I want to make an investment property. She encourages me to contact you. Mm-hmm. You and I have this initial conversation. You provide the information. You know, I talk with you know my co-investor, and we decide. All right, thumbs up. We want to do it. Yeah, I let Ashley know. Okay, let's do it. Start sending me some properties. I come back to you. What's next? Yeah. So then we 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 do the typical mortgage dance, right? Then which it is, is which is name, what? address, date of birth, social security number, document some income. Um, you know, in my case, we, for the most part, pre-underwrite almost all of our files. So what does that mean? It just means that before you have a property address, we take that loan and we literally move it all the way through to if there was a property, you'd be clear to close. So we document the income. We, you know, after 23 years of doing this, you would expect that I, I, I pretty well know what loans are going to close and which ones won't close. Mm-hmm. And that's true. But there's still a decision step, which causes anxiety in this process. Mm-hmm. And part of making... <laughs> It's not really a vacation home if you're completely anxious getting through the entire process and then you go into it and you had been on edge the entire time. It's really hard to enjoy your first day. Yeah. yeah. So my theory is, you know, again, if if I was, and these are people that we're talking about in the homes, but this is the way my mind works. If I was creating an assembly line, a factory mm-hmm. that produced mortgages, okay, what a cruddy factory would be, but whatever, it's a factory, yeah. okay? There would there are things that happen the same way every single time. Mm-hmm. Well, the way the traditional mortgage process works, Grayson, is this. You come to me, we talk. You give me data, I pre-approve you. And then I sit. Because it costs me man hours to now do all the rest of the steps in that process. Right? I can't pull an appraisal yet because there's no property. But it costs me man hours to underwrite it. It costs me man hours to take the conditions, go back to the borrower to get them. And then submit them back into underwriting so we can basically clear the file for what would be clear to close. Because that's the way the process works. Mm-hmm. Underwriter checks some boxes, says you forgot a couple of documents, go get these documents. We go get them, we submit them again. And then they're like, okay, great, loan's approved, here you go. Well, when you're on a 40-day close, 30-day close, because you bought this highly competitive lake property, lakefront, and you've got a million and a half dollars on the line, right. and you've got family vacation already planned, and you've got all these things lined up. And, and, and I come to you and I say, um, okay, great. Well, we had the pre-approval. So now why don't we start with um, collecting documentation? I mean, right now you're working on how do we furnish the place if you need to furnish it? What am I going to do about the boathouse needed some repairs or we need a boathouse? And now you are now you got a second full-time job. Well, my mortgage assembly line, the factory, just doesn't stop. So instead of stopping at pre-approval, we just go all the way to actual loan approval for a max budget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the loan approval is done. Maybe we got to refresh one or two documents. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're a buyer, don't quit your job. But that way that part is done. It's out of the way. Let's back up and just to lay down some some terminology. You said pre-approval a couple of times. Yeah. 
layman's terms pre-approval is so pre-approval uh, in by state of virginia terms effectively means we've reviewed a credit report we've reviewed income we've reviewed asset when i say we i mean somebody in my spot mm-hmm. okay so mm-hmm. whether i took the job today and i just started or i took the job 23 years ago and this mm-hmm. is how long i've been doing it that is by definition a pre-approval as long as if the program allows we've run there's algorithms that the mortgage industry uses okay and the algorithms will produce a think of it this way you submit a bunch of data and it says approve or not approve Mm -hmm. okay well a lot of the programs that we utilize a lot of the programs meaning mortgage products Mm -hmm. support the running of this algorithm Mm -hmm. so once the data is all collected Mm -hmm. we submit it Mm -hmm. and then we get approve or call it not approve Mm -hmm. okay well, let's assume it came out approved. You ever heard the phrase garbage in, garbage out? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what if I don't really understand how to do income? What if I don't really look at your bank statements and you don't really have enough money? There's still a person later in the process after pre-approval. Who's going to be digging deeper. The underwriter is going to then what's called validate the findings. Validate mm-hmm. the findings means they're going to take the algorithm result that says approve. Right. And it's going to say approve as long as Grayson's income really matches up with this and whether and that they have x amount of dollars i mean what if i looked at your what for example what if you were a teacher and i asked you for a retirement account you said you were willing to borrow against the retirement account and you give me something from vrs virginia retirement systems Mm -hmm. well it turns out virginia retirement systems most of the time you can't actually borrow against so it's not like a traditional retirement account right so if i just looked at the statement i'm like ooh, cool retirement account um, and I don't pay attention to the fact that it's VRS or I don't know that limitation. I may have pre-qualified you th- and you may have pre-qualified yourself thinking you could borrow that money. Turns out it's inaccessible. Now all of a sudden we got a problem. So when it goes into underwriting past pre-approval, which is again, what we call our confirmed credit approval, mm-hmm. that next step says, okay, well, show me the terms of liquidation. Doesn't mean that the money has to be liquidated yet. It means that the money has the ability to be liquidated. So in order to get that final approval, we've got a document that the funds would be available in order to liquidate. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be a that would be a hard stop, right? Before you find a house, we'd know that all of a sudden the money you thought you could use, you can't. So we need to create another program. Now imagine that happened to you and it happened to you before you found the ideal home. Mm-hmm. You're disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have time to structure potentially another solution. What because, if it, because I haven't found the home I'm looking for yet. I'm right, because the clock hunting. isn't ticking. Right. Now, what if you won their bid? You mm-hmm. won that competitive bid for that million-dollar house that you absolutely love. I'm now under contract. You're now under contract. You've wrote, written a 30-day closing. Meaning I'm going to be going to the settlement table and getting my keys in 30 days. Right. And that gives you 30 days to get the full approval process done. Well, now the real question is, does it? Because we're talking about a month, right? Right. So typically there's how many weeks in a month? Four, four How many half. weekends are there in a week? Mm-hmm. There's one weekend, which is two days. Mm-hmm. So let's figure four weeks, right? Yeah. Eight days, no holidays, because it's one of those months, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So there's really only about 22 days to get you to the closing table, because as much as I work, underwriters and corporate staff, et cetera, they're, you know, they don't work on weekends. Well, and part of the time you're on that roller coaster, and so that cuts into it as so it's well. So it's just not good, and the reality is- it's fast. It's, it's a fast, which is fine. Totally, yeah. totally okay to do. But why, why would our industry, and this is an industry-wide problem. Mm-hmm. Why would our industry stop at a point that creates an immense amount of risk to the buyer when we could just go a little further and we could mitigate that risk? 
By just digging a little deeper, you mean? Just by going through the process. It's the same assembly line we're going to go through no matter what. So why don't we do it? And the answer is because we're cheap. Because the Save, companies saving are- money. Companies are looking out for man hours, man hours yeah. as opposed to what's helping you make the best decisions. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, virtually every problem, and, and I, I'm a very, I'm a realist about this, virtually every problem that I've ever come across in my career, mm -hmm. right, that's, that's happened on our files that we've mm -hmm. gotten at the closing table. A loan problem. Could have been solved if I would have utilized this process sooner in my career. Just started sooner. Yeah. Okay. So your point is, and it sounds like what your shop does is you, you start the process and you don't pause. No. You just, just keep on going. Right. So you're working towards final loan approval. Are you working, are you working towards final loan approval for a client before they've even found a home? If I, if, if, if I can, can, absolutely. If you can. Yeah. With meaning you're collecting the documents, you're, you're verifying all of the income data, you're yeah. doing all of the things that you can do. Yeah. As opposed to waiting until the very last second and finding an unhappy surprise. Well, so all those things that you just mentioned, that's actually part of the pre-approval process. Okay. But the pre-approval doesn't have to stop. The pre-approval can move to an actual loan approval Roger. where an underwriter has then validated. Because keep in mind, the underwriter's job is to protect the company from risk. It's not mm -hmm. to deny loans. They are 100% understand that their job is to approve loans because that's how a mortgage company makes money. Mm -hmm. So they know that. They're and just so to minimize risk. Right. And they're there to validate. They're there to validate findings. Mm -hmm. So again, every other problem that I've ever experienced in my career, you know whose fault it wasn't ever? It wasn't ever an underwriter's fault. The underwriter. Yeah. You know whose fault it was a hundred percent of the time? Yeah. The first person up. Front. This guy sitting in the seat right yeah. here. Yeah. And that's because, you know, either we didn't go through that process, I misread a guideline, I missed something, I misunderstood something. And and I think you could think back even to Ashley's career, your career as well. Every problem that you've ever experienced, if you really break it down, right? When we talk about solving problems, et cetera, we look at what's the root problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the root problem is usually we make a stake out on the front end. We don't ask for something on the front end. We miss something. A borrower doesn't agree to move through this process with us, whatever that would be. But mm -hmm. had we gotten that extra step in, we would have found the problem earlier and we would have solved the problem earlier. And again, as a mortgage engineer, Right, I want to find the problem as early as we possibly can because right. everything, every loan has some kind of problem. Most are just not horribly damaging, right? A lot of them are just in, you know, inconvenient. Mm -hmm. But if we can handle mm -hmm. inconvenience before it's urgent, mm -hmm. it feels a lot, a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Now, are there again for the Lake Anna investor looking for a short-term rental property? Are there different types of loan products? that they should be thinking about? Are there some that, you know, we could or should talk about, or is it really, is there a one size fits all that they're going to end up landing in or commercial loan quote versus residential loan? Should they be using one over, over another here? Yeah. I mean, they're, um, so let's talk the quickly, the commercial versus the residential. Okay. Um, the, the reason that people and the, and, and I, you know, I have commercial property as well. Mm -hmm. So the reason that you would use commercial, uh, most notably is if it's a multi-unit home. Okay. And multi-unit is anything in excess of four. So if it's deeded as one property and it has more than four separate living units, so think apartment building or think house that has five separate walled off entrances, et cetera. Okay. Right. That's without question. That's a commercial property. Residential. We don't really have any of those here. No, no, but that but would be is one. Is there a good fit for a commercial loan at, you know, at, if, 
if somebody rental. so if somebody is adamant that at closing they require it to settle in the name of an LLC mm-hmm. as opposed to retitling say post close okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and there's there's actually a comment i have to bring i'll bring up about that in a second yep. because there's there's a bunch of misinformation out there about can you retitle can you not retitle etc yeah Again, we, were, we were talking about yeah. that yeah but but from a commercial standpoint so when i've bought residential property that I knew definitively needed to go into an LLC's name in the very beginning, I used commercial money because residential money doesn't allow you to do that. Oh, you can't even do that. No, you can't do it at the actual closing. But keep in mind, commercial is going to require, no matter what, a personal guarantor. So a lot of people confuse it. They call me and they say, I want to close in the name of an LLC. What they're not saying is, they're not saying, I want to make sure this is titled in an LLC. I mean, it might be implying that as well, but they're really asking me if they can borrow money with their LLC as the borrower. Right. Even commercial money. There's still someone behind it. You still have to be the personal the person guarantor. It, right. So you're still there as the guarantor, even though the LLC is borrowing and ultimately at the same time is on title. But, you know, and for reasons that, you know, we don't have to dive into here, um, just time, expertise, et cetera. There, there are investors who will come and say, I've made the decision up front. I've talked to you know my CPA or I've talked to an attorney, and they decide the purchase vehicle needs to be an LLC. Yeah. So if someone if someone is wearing that hat at this point, and that's their, their, their mindset, would you recommend that they consider or start with a commercial loan product? Is that? Uh, no, not necessarily. Because keep in mind. Or just easier just to retitle? Well, so retitling is dependent upon the the guidelines that exist. Okay, so for example, and guidelines have a tendency to, I mean, they change just like some of the other stuff we'll talk about later. But so Fannie Mae has in their, what's called their seller guide. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is a statement, and I've actually sent this to you before, Mm -hmm. but there's a statement that basically says, provided that retitling the property into an LLC, and I'm paraphrasing right now, so don't, you know, but provided that the LLC itself is, uh, that the individual that owns the property currently is a majority member of the LLC, Mm -hmm. okay, that the property can be retitled as long as it doesn't affect the original occupancy agreement of the property. That's fancy way to say, as long as it wasn't a primary residence when you originally got the money, and it is now an investment property or it's now a second home, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Second home and investment, then they're okay with you retitling it. And the important part is, is in this in the state of Virginia, again, not a real estate attorney, in the state of Virginia, if you are the member owner of the LLC and you're also on title, the state of Virginia doesn't doesn't um, charge you transfer taxes to retitle that property. Okay. So it's one of the unique things because, for example, a home that um, my wife and I own down in the Virgin Islands, one of one of the vacation rentals. Mm-hmm. Down there, if you retitle a property from your name to an LLC that you own and completely control, you have to pay complete transfer taxes Tax. again. So, and that's a you know that's a twenty seven thousand dollar decision. So I don't need it in an LLC that badly. Yeah. Okay. Um, However, so if I own my primary residence Mm -hmm. and then I move out of my primary residence and decide to turn it into a rental property and then I decide, okay, I want to transfer this into an LLC, that would violate the rule that you just mentioned, right? Because you're re. The original purpose has been recharacterized from primary residence to secondary. Is that well? So the way that it is written, um, the way that I interpret it as a right. layman, and we're not lawyers, yet. right? Well, yes. I am, but <laughs> not for today's purpose, right? Not for today's purpose. So I that would be a case where I would say 
you need to go to a real estate attorney. I would say somebody that doesn't just close real estate business, that is an actual real dig, estate dig attorney. It. Yeah, give you some And good then advice. they'll read a copy of the note. And, and, and like in my case, so let's say I closed your loan for you, right? And you're like, hey, Andy, this is what I want to do. Well, great. I have access to the guidelines. I'll send your attorney the guidelines. Right. This is what the note says. This is what the guidelines now say. Mm -hmm. Because they were also different, Grayson, five years ago, six years ago. So if the guidelines were different six years ago and you got your loan eight years ago, but now the guideline is is obviously different today, what applies? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. That's an attorney question. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that would be the answer to use. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I took us off on a bit of a tangent, but that's all right. But so so bottom line, what would be your advice to someone who says, should I should I lean towards using a residential product or a commercial product? Um, so I, residential is 99 out of 100 times going to be your better terms, more oh, okay. long-term, secure terms. Okay. Commercial money is typically ARM-based. It doesn't have to be, but it's usually yeah. ARM-based. Um, ARM, ARM adjustable, adjustable rate, mortgage. rate mortgage. Yeah, not fixed rate. Which is every, every few years, a period five, seven, ten years, your right. interest rate can change. Right. Then there's also some components with commercial loans. For example, like the, the buildings that, that my family and I own um, every year, we have to submit our personal financial statements for mm -hmm. the commercial loan. I do this for a living. It's a For me, it is an absolute pain in the rear end. I do not enjoy doing it. And it's like submitting a loan application that's super detailed every single year, even though you're not applying it for is, anything. It is a pain. It's it. it uh, I pain. honestly, it annoys me more than probably about anything. Yeah. So for that matter, knowing that residential mortgages can typically be marginally less expensive, um, if the only reason is is that I need to title at the day of closing in an LLC, then I would probably go the commercial route if that's the only reason. But. I would also probably tell you to talk to a different real estate attorney who would indicate that it's all basically the same. And at the end, you know, you're okay to retitle and then ends up in the LLC anyway. So. Okay. So most of the time, the residential product is going to make more sense. Most of the time. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I know I, I sound biased because it's obviously what I do. Right. But the, the truth is, is there have been select circumstances where the commercial has definitely been the better option. And then we mm -hmm. refer out a really good commercial lender that we know in the year. Actually, you and I both know. Mm -hmm. um, and any really good connected loan officer that that does what we do is going to have somebody that supports that. Yeah. You know, supports that. Yeah. And it should not be the same person. I'm going to be super, super uh, opinionated about this. It should not be the same person that does both. They're like, oh, great. I, I do commercial loans too. Really? Well, yeah, you've got to, I mean, really, truly, they're completely different beasts. You mm -hmm. basically have, um, what's the saying? A, a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. I see. It's yeah. just, you're going to get basically average probably at mm -hmm. both at best. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's that way, you know, on, on in, in my profession as a real estate agent, like, you know, the, the, the very, very successful commercial agents, you know, and true commercial properties, yeah. commercial buildings, that's all they do. That's it. That, that, that's all they do. They right. don't they don't dabble here and dabble there. That's all they do. And, and same on the residential side. Um, what about, um, you know, this is taking a couple of steps back, but if someone is trying to decide who to talk to should i you know i bank at wells fargo should i just call wells fargo and talk to them about a home loan or this uh, credit union mm -hmm. um or you guys novus you know i mean how do i how do i navigate that 
that's a, a question as a real estate agent I often get. Yeah. You know, well, my, my money's at Bank of America. Why not I just talk to them? Well, I think it it's probably less about the company and more about the person. Okay, is really what it comes down to. By the way, um, as of this date, just FYI, Wells Fargo has pulled back from all residential lending, so they're not even doing mortgages anymore. Good to know. I mean, the reason for it, I mean, it, they're doing it at their wealth level, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a, a wealth management client, they'll still do them, mm-hmm. but um, but not at the retail level. And, and the reality is, is because it's really hard to compete. It's hard to be profitable in today's market in the mortgage environment. Um, and so to answer your question, though, more specifically, I think that it really does come down to the experience of the individual. The truth is, is that I know, and, and this is, again, I can really just speak to myself and, and loan officers that I coach, right? Mm-hmm. But I know my business better than anybody that is going to touch their loan file. That's not common. Meaning, right. usually when you think of a company, like, we'll, it doesn't matter, we'll pick on big bank name XYZ. Mm-hmm their underwriters are expected to be the experts. Well, most of the time, they're not even the experts, but they're the experts compared to the person taking the loan application. So the problem is, is you don't have anybody fighting for you in that case. And what I know of loans is this, most of them get done and get closed because of the, the gray area. And I don't mean the gray area legally. I mean the gray area like a guideline is written. And so... When you think of loans, there's, um, I think back to my time in the fire department, been a volunteer firefighter for a long time. And so we, when I was learning, right, and at, at the station, I was a little rookie firefighter and they were teaching me what to do. That, now, granted, I was actually older. I think I was like 32. So I was the old man rookie, right? Yeah. But it was standard operating procedures and standard operating guidelines. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why do we have this SOP and SOG and what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Like, well, a procedure is, mandatory it is followed a hundred percent of the time there is no variance from it for example the truck doesn't roll without two people in it Mm -hmm. you got a driver and you've got typically an officer in the second seat okay that's a procedure period guideline is okay um you know uh, two in two out you roll with three people right you should have a third firefighter on the actual engine that's the guideline should should. versus right all things being equal you operate in a vacuum this is it well mortgages work the same way there are guidelines, and the guidelines are just like the IRS. They're vague for a reason. They're open to interpretation. They're open to decision-making. It's not some rule book that we said that, that says, do this exactly. Mm-hmm. It says, if this, then that, maybe, unless this, or that occurs. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way they read. So if you don't, if you don't, at the end of the day, have somebody that understands it better than anybody else that's going to touch your file, then all of the problem solving is going to fall on your shoulders. Right. And if you're willing to take that on, great. You know, I'm hiring. You might as well take a job in my industry. But the fact of the matter is, what are you paying me for? So what should you do? I would start with an interview. Do you own a house? Do you own vacation rentals? Do you own investment properties? Um, here's a great question. I mean, I got people stand financially naked in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I know their net worth. I know mm-hmm. how much debt they carry. Ask your loan officer how much debt they have. Ask them how much they have in a retirement account. Ask them how much they save every single month. Ask, personally. Sure. Why not? Personal. I mean, I'm asking you really personal yeah. questions. It's, it's a, it's an open book, right? And then there's one really important question that I would ask. And <laughs> this one's, this one's, I think kind of fun. And when I get asked it, it's like, it's not fun, but it's fun. 
what's the most recent large mistake that you've made and how did you fix it? Because the reality is, is if you're not making mistakes and fixing mistakes, then you're not actually trying very hard for the client. So where you, and what you're looking, in my opinion, what you're looking for is, is, is there blame, right? Is it somebody else's fault? Well, nobody wants to work with that person. Right. Right. Like that's, that's my theory, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, extreme ownership. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I read that book and it was like, that's exactly what I would, if I were a client, what I would expect from somebody in our industry. That's good. So the point is, is that I think, um, there's a ton of people that do what I do. Ton of them. And there's a lot of different options and you'll get really comparable pricing one way or the other rates are going to be pretty similar because all our money comes from the same spot. It's mostly all securitized by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, probably good transition into what we'll talk about next. But the reality is, is because of that, because we're all getting our, our water from the same watering hole, Mm -hmm. it's all going to taste pretty similar. The difference is, is, is somebody carrying the water back to your house for you or do you have to do the legwork? Right. Right, right. And if there's a problem, they're problem-solving skills. You know, right. how, how much are they willing to work past 5 o'clock to get it done? Yeah. 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 How and much do they own the, the problem? And that's one of the things we love about working with you guys is that when, when, when it appears that the plane is about to crash, and I know it's going to crash, somehow you guys call the next day and say, guess what? The plane's it's not going to crash. Well, yeah. it's because nobody likes turbulence. I mean, yeah. still, I'm in an airplane, and I feel like I'm at... 35,000 feet and we hit some, you know, not extreme turbulence, like not Matthew McConaughey turbulence like he just had recently. Right. But if you read the article, you didn't read the article. I can tell by your face, No, but he had some extreme turbulence, I think on his way over to Germany or something like that. And he was like, it was real bad. So I haven't had that, but like when that happens, him and his wife. Yeah. 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 You did read it. But when you have turbulence, everybody except a trained pilot thinks the plane's falling out of the sky. Mm -hmm. Everybody. So the reality is, is in that case, I'm just the trained pilot. If you're my client, you're going to feel like the loan isn't going to close. You're the realtor. You're going to feel like the loan isn't going to close. But what that means is you already know that there's a problem. You're aware. We've told you that there's an issue that we're working through. The reality is, is until I come, and it's me, until I come on the intercom and I say, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up and assume crash position, right? Until that comes out of my mouth and only Mm -hmm. my mouth, there's always solutions and we're always yeah, working we're, on them. We're, we're but the turbulence it. sucks. It is really uncomfortable. But but I will tell you that there are just to to draw out on the the pilot flying analogy. I, I've worked with other loan officers and mortgage brokers where when there is turbulence, okay, immediately they're on the intercom saying, We're crashing. Okay. And they throw their hands in the air or you can't get a hold of them and, you know, everything's done. What, what, what I have really appreciated about, about your team and what we've noticed makes you guys different is, is just that you, you fight until the very end, generally find a solution, a way to keep the airplane in the sky. Um, so take it for what it's worth. Thanks, but, man. I appreciate it. But I think that your, your point is it, it would be helpful to, when you're making decisions, have conversations with people, talk about their experience. Um, talk about their their personal financial experience. Yeah, try to assess out whether they're a I'm going to blame someone else personality or if there's some extreme ownership there. Right, um, and use that to make your to make your decision. Yeah, and again, it, that all of that is proof that every single one of those cases where you thought the plane was going to fall out of the sky and it was going to crash, and every one of those cases where the other people didn't answer their telephone or told you it is crashing, it's imminent, right? Those are all 100% related to the fact that we either as an industry didn't try 
where the client didn't allow us mm -hmm. to move past basic pre-approval and get that loan into full approval mm -hmm. before they got into cut. And sometimes it's unavoidable. It just happens. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that it, sh it, it should happen less and less and less the more we pay attention to the fact that we can actually fix that. Mm -hmm. We can fix that problem. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, I am, let's assume I'm, I'm one of your clients. Um, I'm now pre-approved. Um, just freshly pre-approved and I'm, and I'm house shopping. Y you guys are going to continue to ask me for information documentation, correct? Yeah, but not, not at some like, um, annoying level. It's not like, it's not like every week you're going to get a call from us saying, I need seven but, things. But you need the basics. Things like, yeah, yeah. You need, you need the basics. Income, assets, but in, in, the advice that I would give to folks in that position is give you the information as quickly as possible. There's a good reason, you know, every, every once in a while, you know, we will run into a situation where there's a client who yeah. you know, they, they disappear for five days. You've been asking for information. We can't get the information from them yeah. or, they're, or, or they're not, or they're providing incomplete information. And then we're approaching the closing date and they and they have concerns that we may have a delayed closing and right. just that's what I'm driving at. Yeah. Well, I think the help, the help us do our job. Yeah, and the way that I the way that I say that is most of the time it's because either one they're super busy, right? And and it doesn't feel important because they don't understand. Right. So when I I I've I've dealt with this over my career which is People are happy to give you, well, they're not happy, but they will give you what you need when they understand why you need it. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times that we've, it, this, and again, this is us, this, this is an industry-wide problem, but just admitting that we struggle with this sometimes as well, is we might ask for a, a, we ask for a document, and there's no why behind it, and it's a little difficult to find like oh, I need a I need a W-2 from 2020 and you stopped working there in 2021. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I need that W-2. Uh, yeah, but I don't work there anymore. I had two jobs in the middle like, man, okay, it's whatever. And they right. just move on. Not a big deal. Right, but understanding the why, which is, oh, well, it turns out, Grayson, that we need that because you had um, commission-based income and we need in order to dot, we need in order to prove that you have it probably more like a pay stub. We need that because of this. Oh, that makes sense, Andy. Okay, cool. I'll get that for you. It's going to be kind of a pain, but I'll get it. So part of that is communication, mm -hmm. right? And that's the assumed knowledge, right? Like where the, the we might use industry jargon or we might we might just assume you understand something and you really don't. And and that's just communication and that's that's inherent in every service related industry is always a problem is does the does the person receiving the information on the other end really understand what you need, why you need it, and when you need it? And if you can cover all three of those things, you usually don't have any problem getting the documentation. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. kind of the it's kind of the what and the why and the when, um, but the but really the when and the why are the two that are the problem, mm -hmm. and we don't spend any time on that as an industry. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's a fair point as well. Interest rates. I mean, this is something that. I mean, we could talk for hours about, and I want to spend just minutes on it, maybe five. Right, cool. And it, it, it's also a moving target because interest rates, you know, if someone who's listening to this a couple months from now, it's going to be very different. Yeah. But if you could just briefly address, and again, in the in the framework of, in the context of, we're, we're talking to investors here. Yeah. With somebody with good credit, roughly, you know, where are the rates now? Um, what drives rates and, you know, where do you see them going over the next 12 months? The magic question. <laughs> but I'll get my cloudy, briefly, my cloudy crystal ball here. Exactly. So, exactly. okay. So from, from a rate standpoint, um, there are roughly 18 variables 
mm-hmm. that affect interest rates. Yeah. Everything from property type um, to uh, number of units, credit score, loan to value, down mm-hmm. payment, property usage, location, area. Like there's all kinds of variables, program, right? Mm-hmm. Amortization. All these are variables that affect rates. So when people, and I know why people ask this question, they say, oh, what are rates today? Mm-hmm. Well, the industry's trained to answer back with, of course, questions like, okay, well, let's give you 13 sure. questions. So I came prepared for this. So as of today, May 3rd, mm-hmm. okay, uh, the average 30-year fixed rate loan for a primary residence purchase. For, this is for primary residence. Primary residence I'm gonna, purchase. I'm going to live there. Yeah. You're going to live there. So for a primary residence purchase with a credit score of greater than 740. Okay. Has an average interest rate of 6.482. That's the average interest rate today. Okay. Now, that's important to then quantify to say, how do we know that's an average? Well, so... There's a company out there that controls a ton of data. There's a few companies that control a ton of data, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so this company in the mortgage industry is a company called Black Knight, okay? Mm-hmm. Black Knight runs a, a a couple of platforms, one of which is a system called Optimal Blue, mm-hmm. okay? So everybody watching this podcast can go to OptimalBlue.com and they can see the exact same rate chart information that we use Mm-hmm. On a daily basis, optimal, blue. optimal blue, right? Not Optimus Prime, not that one. Optimal blue. <laughs> I like Transformers too, of course. So and Voltron. So when they go to that, they're going to notice that there's a little ribbon at the top, and you can click on it without a login information, and you can drill down and you can see. So where does this data come from? So this data is is somewhere between fifty and eighty percent of all mortgage rate locks mm-hmm. are done through an engine like this. Okay. So it's aggregated data. Okay. And so based on that information, so you want to know where they are, that's where they are today. Investment property and second home, you could expect to be roughly three quarters of a percent more than that. Okay. So around seven, low sevens. Yeah. Investment, secondary home. And if you're making decisions on that, right, right, like right now, my wife and I are still active, well, passively, actively looking for other investment. Always. Mm -hmm. Um, when we run numbers, it's funny. She's she's she. I love her to death, but she's my worst client because I. She's like, well, what are we running numbers at? And I said seven and a half, and she's like, oh my gosh, you got to do better than that, Andy. You're in the industry. What are you doing? Is it really? And I said, just we need to make conservative decisions. Yes, it's probably a little lower than that, but I gotta I gotta like sandbag my wife in that particular case too because if I show her seven and a quarter and she wanted seven, I'm a dead man. She's like, you're sabotaging. That's it. right. That's you're, right. You're sabotaging it. <laughs> but that's where they are. Okay, so you know it, today it's what May third, twenty twenty three, low sevens. Primary yep. residence around six four. Yeah, and again, that's just someone important to emphasize. There's yep, lots of different variables, and it's someone who has a seven forty or better. Yeah, credit score. And then, and and what we we've talked about this at length, but you know, just briefly, what is driving interest rates? Okay, so let me tell you what is not. Mm-hmm. The federal Fed. funds rate. The Fed. Yeah. Okay. It is not. I love hearing people talk about that. Here's the funny part. So no doubt, no doubt. It's and amazing. I'm going to tell you what, what drives it in a second. But yeah. I went to I went to one of these online, um, uh, <laughs> funny story. I'll tell you the story, I'll, I guess, off podcast. But I went to one of these like this online- is a family lead, podcast. Yeah, no. One of these online like lead, lead generation engines, mortgage, like what's your mortgage rate going to be? And you put in your information and you get absolutely hammered with solicitation calls. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I went to one of these sites for a, a kind of a funny reason. I'll tell you later. And, um, and so I'm looking at this and right there in the middle of the page, here's what it said. The fed expected to raise interest rates early May 
lock in rates now before rates increase. Right, of course. I looked at that and I'm like, see, this is the problem. If that isn't proof that all somebody's doing is selling you money, I don't know what is. So here's what does affect interest rates. And the word starts with an I. It's been a buzzword. So what do you guess it is? Mm -hmm. Inflation. So why does it affect mortgage-backed securities, which is really what rates are tied to? It's not tied to the 10-year treasury. It's not tied to the two-year treasury. It's not tied to the federal funds rate. It's tied to these things called mortgage-backed securities. Okay, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac issue these mortgage-backed securities. MBS is what they're called. Mm -hmm. And there's different coupon rates. You don't have to get too complicated with it. But the point is, is that they move just like a stock does, up and down. Mm-hmm. We use Japanese candlestick charts in order, to, in order to watch resistance levels, support levels, moving averages, where are rates likely trending because statistics, I didn't do so good in college with it, but I crush it with the mortgage industry, right? Mm-hmm. So they move in accordance with that. So why does inflation affect mortgage rates? And here's the thing, the Fed indirectly affects mortgage rates, and I'll explain how that happens in a second. But basically, as the mortgage in uh, mortgage yields move, mm-hmm. if inflation is heavy, which guess what? As of now, inflation has been a big hot topic, right? Mm-hmm. And and will be for a uh, uh, you know foreseeable future. In fact, I think this week, either today or tomorrow, the Fed has a meeting. They're probably going to raise the federal fund. Well, maybe it's next week. Fed's going to raise the federal funds rate probably a quarter percent. So um, when that happens, they're going to come out with commentary. And they're going to say inflation is cooling, inflation is better. The real number comes out with what we call the CPI, the Consumer Pricing Index. So the more expensive goods are, the less you can buy of it with the same dollar. Mm-hmm. That's why we're all complaining about cost of eggs and gas or you know whatever it is we're complaining about this day, right? So because of that, a mortgage is a fixed income. It's an investment product that's a bond. So you're going to pay interest over the duration of, say, 30 years. But if you think about 30 years back, Right, and I'm getting to the point age-wise where I can actually remember buying things 30 years back. Mm-hmm. It costs me so much more to buy those things today than it did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So if the interest that's being paid is established off of today's dollars and inflation goes sky high over the next two to three years, can an investor really buy as much milk with the same dollar that you were giving them for interest? Right so what do interest rates have to do in order to compensate for inflation? They have to rise. Mm-hmm. And interest rates rise as a result of inflationary comments. Okay. So the Fed completely screwed up because they basically said inflation is transitory, right? It's not. Okay. It has been proven now. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, is whether we're in a recession or not in a recession. Is everybody going to mention the R word? Completely separate topic. However, here's the good news for the American public. Every single time you chart it, every single time that we've been in a recession, mortgage interest rates have fallen every single time. So people are out there freaked out about a recession. Okay, there's reasons to be freaked out about a recession. But when the Fed is driving the car with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, and that's the way they've always done it, we're going to continue to basically get whiplash. Mm-hmm. And that's how they work it. So the the mortgage-backed securities, inflation, all these things come from, the movement comes from the Fed's language. And if the Fed says, or the numbers say, inflation is still a problem, mortgage rates are going to stay high. Well, mortgage rates aren't going to stay high. Um, so my cloudy crystal ball says we could very well be looking at mid to low 5% interest rates by as early as first quarter of next year, mm-hmm. maybe middle of next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could arguably, it could happen sooner. May could be a big month because of the CPI numbers that are supposed to come out. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to understand some of those things in the movement, then you can obviously 
you know, you can you can give people information that they can go research themselves. But look, my job and your job isn't to tell people where we're headed, it's to give people data so they can go do some research on their own and form an opinion. Mm-hmm. But the Fed does not control interest rates. The Fed doesn't. Yeah, they don't they don't, well, they don't control, control mortgage them, rates. And yes, and they don't and they don't directly impact them. They're not directly controlling them. Correct. They're not setting them. And largely the the borrowing rates are following inflation data. That's it. Inflation numbers and comments about inflation. Correct. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, over the last year we're seeing the inflation data drop. Correct? Yes. Yes. Which means we should continue to see, again, cloudy crystal ball, but we should continue to see our mortgage borrowing rates Right. In the decline. Right. That's, well, that's exactly right. That's what we're forecasting. It's going to be a volatile market. Why? Because, well, this is opinion because the Fed chairman does not want to admit that he completely missed the boat. Mm -hmm. So he's got to save face. So the federal funds rate keeps rising. They, they, they are reactive. They're not proactive. If Mm -hmm. you look at the inflation numbers that keep coming out in the CPI, Mm -hmm. inflation is already significantly lower than what the Fed is saying it is. Well, the longer they say it's high, then the more they can cool the economy, the more the cool they econ- the more they cool the economy in that case. I mean, the other part is this, this is the risk. I don't think the and, and this is a long conversation. I don't think the Fed is going to be happy until the unemployment rate is substantially higher than it has been. That's what they want. They want what unemployment and they don't really want people to be without a job. They want what unemployment brings. And so what unemployment brings is people that don't spend money. Mm-hmm. because they don't have money to spend. Mm-hmm. They, they're they more restrictive on their savings accounts. They're to not- cool off the economy. That's exactly it. And then as the economy cools, we will see mortgage interest rates come down. What, which would be good for everybody. Or but bad, I mean, depending on whether you're the person that doesn't end up with a job. True, uh, yeah, if, if you lose job. If you I lose mean, it's, job, yeah, this course. is economic physics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Right, right. Um, what if I am the, uh, you know, the Lake Anna investor again, and you know, I get pre-approved, and I find a property that needs some work? Mm-hmm. Let's say that it needs a new deck, the roof needs some repairs, and I want to do an addition. Is there any way that I can take advantage of a financing product that will allow me to roll that, you know, roll those improvements, that renovation, those costs into my loan? Or am I going to be, should I just assume I'm going to have to pay for all that out of pocket? Um, so the, the simple answer is yes. There are options and programs that exist that you can utilize. Mm-hmm. Um, is a seller willing to take the offer when those are part of the offer? Probably not. So we've, it's really kind of a loaded question because it's a conversation where candidly you and I could do another you know hour and a half podcast and we could talk specifically only about this topic. Um, but the simple answer is yes. If there's things that you want to have done, that's a conversation that you need to have with your, you know, your mortgage professional that's helping you. And if they don't have options, then you need to talk to somebody that does. Simplistically, there are scenarios where you can utilize, um, you know, riders, re- rehab loans, like uh, escrow repair credits, things like that that we offer. Reduce down payments. Yeah, I mean, but now think of this, because you and Ashley list a lot of houses. So if you did, if you were to Google 
percentage of 203k loans or rehab loans that close my guess is is your number's probably between 40 and 50%. So if a contract's written, as few as 40% of them actually settle. So in a competitive market in Lake Anna, super sellers market at this point in time because of the highly, you know, touted community and the demand in order to be here, is any seller going to take their house off the market for that type of mortgage knowing that there's a 60% chance maybe that it doesn't yeah. close? Especially if there's another another offer to choose from. So the answer is no. So we have so it's you know circumstantially we have to look if it's a buyer's market and sellers are throwing themselves at you in order to buy their house. Sure, they're probably willing to take that offer. So it part or of it if is, I'm the only buyer and I come across this property. Yeah, and and so there are programs that we can explore. I try really really hard to keep people away from remodel loans, but do the remodel. And we do that through reduced down payment. We do that through other equity usage. There's a there's an investor um, scenario called buy, remodel, rent, refinance uh, that we use Burr. It's called the Burr method. And so we spend a lot of time on that. We utilize other property equity to do these things because the other part that happens if you're gonna rehab a home is you've now got bank oversight on all your decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, do you? Re I mean, people like me because I like Mickey Mouse, but the reality is they don't want me hanging around their life for eight months while they do the work on the property. Yeah, it's almost like a construction loan. Well, it is there's, a construction there's, loan. There's supervision involved. Exactly. And, and inspections. But but for, for the investor out there that wants to, Wants, just wants to know if it's possible. Yes, the it's possible. Yes, that's good to know. Yeah. That's good to know. W what if, you know, I, I own a half a dozen, you know, properties and my, my goal is to, you know, keep amassing additional investment assets. From a financing perspective, what are the things I need to be, you know, kind of thinking about? My, my, my goals, what levers do I want to keep in certain places? So there is, at present time, there's um, um, a we'll call it a procedure because mm -hmm. that's what it's at, at the, say the Fannie Freddie level. Mm -hmm. Okay. That says that if you're using standard conventional money, you can't have any more than 10 financed properties. Okay. Okay. Now banks, different banks can create what's called overlays. So if you, and this is an important interview question, right? For the, for the, the podcast listeners here, if the bank that you're talking to or the company, the mortgage company, broker, bank, whatever they want to, whatever they are, if they have overlays, that might restrict you to no more than five finance properties. So anybody can make rules that are more constricting than, say, Fannie and Freddie's rules. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and 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 they might they don't they probably don't even know. Like the number of times I've had people say, "Well, I've heard you can only finance five properties." I'm like, "Well, that's probably at wherever you were talking to mm -hmm. the bank." But the reality rule. is, right? The reality is more like ten. So you have to be cognizant of that. And that's for conventional loans. And that's cumulative borrowers. So correct. So let's say that you're buying this with three friends, this house with three friends, and you and um, you know your three friends each own four properties already. Well, each of you is underneath the 10 limit, but cumulatively you're at 12. So that's part of the rule is it's so cumulative the, okay. borrower finance okay. data. So the ones that I own by myself count towards the 10. Correct. And so, but then there's, then there are product chains, for example, because everywhere, you know, everywhere that you have one of these rules that takes place, there's of course opportunity for other, you know, other investors to step in. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, we have an investor that has 
you can have up to 50 financed properties. And it's borrower related, it's not cumulative. So if you own 49 and your wife's on the mortgage and she owes 40, owns 49 and you're both going on this as your 50th, technically you'll own 99 properties. But one of you has now hit 50. Mm -hmm. Problem with that is, is that that's not securitized money through Fannie Freddie. We're talking now about something called portfolio money, similar mm -hmm. to Jumbo, mm -hmm. which is where mm -hmm. the cost structure changes. It's no longer securitized at Wall Street through those MBSs, the mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. It's now securitized through these private investors. And they do the same thing, but it's now a component of supply and demand. So there's less supply of that money. Therefore, what happens to the cost? Goes, goes up because there's demand for it. So that's what people have to be aware of is each one of these circumstances, it's not, it is not an innate um, American right that you have the ability to just borrow as much money as you want to buy a house. Mm -hmm. There are rules that are set associated with it. And then there are plenty of opportunities to go outside, but then the supply and demand says the, the similar to condos, for example, non-warrantable condos, those, that's a topic for another, another podcast. But when that occurs, and you're outside the standard format of what the general population may qualify for, because typically because of property type or circumstances, you're probably going to pay a little bit more for it. So, bottom line, if I'm someone who's accumulating a lot and I want to continue to do so, it's a it, first, it's a conversation to have with my lender and say, this is the direction things are going. Am I going to be limited in some fashion? Right. Do I need to go to a portfolio lender? Or do I need to make an adjustment of some kind? So or how so do we gain feeling? How, how do we gain, gain plan so that I can get as many into the optimal form of finance as possible? Sometimes that's layering your your risk, meaning sometimes that means that we're going to figure out how to go help you buy 10 and then we're going to transition and we're going to go figure out how to help your wife buy 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Well, then the, that's 20 for a family. Okay, that looks better than nothing. Um, those are also opportunities, Grayson, where we have, we have we've determined that they've sort of outgrown the mm -hmm. residential environment. Then commercial allows, for example, like we've done this before, where we've basically taken... Um, a blanket mortgage, which encompasses all the properties, rolled that into a true commercial loan, removed them from their name personal liability-wise, and then that frees up their individual financing. And so you might have a collection of, say, 10 properties. You walk into the commercial lender that we recommend. They put a blanket mortgage on it and have done the correct way. It then frees up your credit and the profile for you and purchase more homes. Okay. Okay. So a conversation to have with your lender, just plan. Yeah, and it's part of the long term, right? Like right. if we if we shoot you in the foot today simply to help right. you get into one house, that's not really the goal. You have bigger plans, right? You want to own 100 doors. And so if you want to own 100 doors, well, the goal isn't to just own one. The goal is to own 100, but owning one gets you to 100. So you just need to make sure that the one that you do today doesn't put you off course mm -hmm. for the 100. Shifting topics, um, Lake Anna, as you probably know, sits in three different counties, Louisa County, Spotsylvania, and Orange. How does that impact loan writing? A lot. Okay. Such lot. as? Such as? Things, so, things that the Lake, Lake Anna investor should be thinking about. Okay. So let's talk. Um, so before we get to investor, let me, let me just tell you primary residence quickly first. Okay. okay. So... Um, a popular first-time homebuyer program is some component of FHA or mm -hmm. USDA. These are government-insured programs that allow for low to no down payment. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. each of these counties has different um, has different income limits. Okay, so USDA, for example, a product has an income limit. You can't make too much money. Okay, and qualify so for the program. 
Okay, so if I make more than that income, more limit, than that income limit, certain products that, that especially right. the the zero down products, I right. can't, I can't, I can't right. get access to. But Orange County, for example, is a different income limit than uh, Louisa County, which is a different income limit than Spotsylvania County. Okay. okay, so if you cross that lot now to a consumer, they're like, you know what, I live in Frederick, or I, I work in Fredericksburg, or whatever, and I just. Spotsylvania's taxes are too high. The house prices are crazy. If I just go across that line and, you know, the realtor takes them across the line. Like I know you and Ashley know these rules. Mm -hmm. You brought it up. Clearly, you know, these rules we've Mm -hmm. talked about them, but you take that person across the line and they ratify a purchase contract in Louisa County. Mm -hmm. And you're using one of those programs, potentially it's income restricted. All of a sudden you don't qualify. They may not qualify. So now you need down payment. And then there's all kinds of other variables that come about. So each of those counties on some of those first time home buyer programs is important. Now, subsequently, each of those counties has a different loan limit for a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac conventional loan. So the conforming loan limit, conventional loan limit today, which is money through Fannie Freddie for say all the all of America, unless you're designated as what's called a high cost area, which Spotsylvania is, then restricts your loan amount to around seven hundred twenty four thousand. I think it's seven twenty four two hundred. This is for a conventional loan, right? And keep in mind, a conventional loan, if you're a first-time home buyer, you can get in with about 3% down first-time home buyer, mm-hmm. otherwise 5%. So you'd take that loan amount, 724.2, and you'd divide it by, say, 0.95. So it gives you the property, the purchase price that you could qualify for with 5% down. If you're an investor, remember, your target number is certainly 20% down, but realistically, it's not even cost-effective till you get to 25% down. So you'd take your 724.2 and you'd divide by 0.25, and that gives you your maximum purchase price, so roughly a million dollars, okay? Mm-hmm. Quick quick back of the napkin math. Mm-hmm. That's Louisa and that's Orange County. Uh, yeah, and then, um, so then you go into Spotsylvania County. Mm-hmm. And Spotsylvania County, I'm, I'm literally, uh, it's like nine, I think it's like 926,000. I think my computer's hooked up, I'll look. But- the um that nine hundred and twenty six thousand now, so it's lower. It's possible, no, it's no, it's higher. That's the loan amount. The loan oh, amount for, was seven hundred and twenty four oh, right, versus say nine twenty six. Right. right. So um, I'll look this up while we're doing that. Um, okay. And if you're looking then at at homes in Spotsylvania County, and then you cross that line into Louisa or into Orange, and you write an offer on a house because you've been pre-approved for say, you know, a million dollars thinking you're going to need, you know, $40,000, $50,000 in down payment. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden that number changes to $200,000 in down payment. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a huge impact, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it really does, it really does matter. Um, and, and that's the thing, like from a client standpoint, from a buyer, from a seller, they certainly don't understand it. And then a real estate agent perspective it's really our job, but that's where that's where the benefit of the team, the collaboration between a realtor and a lender, is really pretty critical. And it doesn't mean that you have that like it, it doesn't mean that it's just you have to work with their referral. It means that both people need to understand right. that they're serving the same master in that case, the same yeah. client, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how it that's how it affects it, but it's pretty big. So in Spotsylvania County, one of the takeaways is here in Spotsylvania County, you can you can use a conventional loan at a greater amount. Yeah, actually, I was before you before you kick into jumbos. Yeah, so I which I can was, be more expensive. So I was mistaken. So it's it's actually one point zero eight nine for a one unit uh, home. So you could buy a quad, a quadplex as an investor. You could buy a four unit home, put twenty five percent down. You can borrow money at. 
2.095 million. So you could figure 25% down, right? So that's what 20% down is $400,000. Another five is basically another million. So a $2.5 million four unit complex, you could borrow $2 million. Well, what's the, okay, so the conformings for the, the let's use layman's terms here. The, the, the maximum size of a loan, conventional loan that I could get in Louisa and Orange is roughly 720, 726,200. 726. I think I said it wrong earlier. I think I said 724. Okay. 726,200. So, so roughly, roughly 726. And that same figure for Spotsylvania County is? Just shy of 1.1. Just shy of one point one, almost okay. four hundred thousand dollars. So, higher. and and is it from a lending perspective? Is it more? Is it generally more advantageous to the borrower, to the buyer, to be using a conventional loan than a jumbo loan above that amount? Yes, it is, um, especially for an investor. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- the pricing yeah. can be significantly better. If you're talking about primary residents, the answer is yes, because- Just talking about investors. Yeah, yeah. so investor, um, in my opinion, yes. The underwriting is easier The because it's it, because it's done through an automated engine, right? It's mm-hmm. done with, I mean, we can get income waivers, we can get asset waivers, we can get appraisal waivers. The process can be significantly less um, hindered, whereas- a jumbo loan, which is anything above that above amount, above those amounts, okay, anything right. above that amount, jumbo portfolio loan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we have programs; they're labeled as AUS, which means we still run the automated underwriting, mm-hmm. but the conditions are heavy. Like, for example, no matter what, I, if you're self-employed, I got to give them two years full tax returns, both mm-hmm. business and personal. I can get away with one year. I can be more creative with a conventional loan. So there are cases where the jumbo loan is better. But arguably across the board, if you have a choice between a conforming loan Mm -hmm. and a jumbo loan. Conventional versus jumbo. Correct. You want to go conventional. Correct. Um, Is the, generally speaking, is the pricing different when you compare jumbo to conventional? Uh, Yes, it is. Am I usually going to have a better interest rate? All things constant in one over the other? Or are my closing costs going to be higher in one over the other? No, I mean it. There, like I run scenarios in both cases. It's okay. kind of a case by case basis. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. Um, things like uh, um, things like credit score mm-hmm. do matter a little bit more um, on a on a say a jumbo environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then the type of product. So your thirty year mortgage is probably going to be more expensive than your thirty year, but your ARM program adjustable rate mortgage may be a little sharper in pricing. So it's just, it's really one of those cases where, you know, for what we do, we just can't be a one trick pony. Mm -hmm. So we have to have the ability to look and see both, present both, determine based on the client's goals, what really is in their best interest to do, present them with the data. But I'd say eight out of 10 times, if we were to put them side by side and the client uses a little extra cash, we'll say to get to a a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan amount, right? Whatever Mm -hmm. that cap would be based Mm -hmm. on the area you're buying. The process is going to be significantly easier for the consumer, and typically, as a result, the pricing can be a little bit sharper. Okay, okay. Often, you know, as an agent, you know, when I'm out, we'll have clients, you know, investors ask, you know, is is one county preferable to the other? And you know, often the Louisa County has lower property taxes. Yeah. Uh, the Louisa County um, Development Office and the Louisa County government structure is a lot easier 
to deal with because it's smaller than than Spotsylvania. So there are and, and there are pros about you know being on the Spotsylvania side with some internet availability and things like that. But but oftentimes you know just from strictly from a financial perspective, it's more advantageous when you're here at Lake Anna to find a property in Louisa or Orange versus Spotsylvania. So that's what kind of prompted my questioning, you know, in, in well, that regard, if there's a benefit, but it sounds like, you know, a potential benefit, you know, you could have a higher conventional loan amount in Spotsylvania than yeah. for, to whatever extent that brings benefit. Well, right. And but to it's an really inv- case by case. Correct. And if you're talking investor as in short term, um, short term vacation rental owner, yeah. yeah. well, here's the one thing that's held true in the industry forever, which is nobody really should ever select any of their mortgage money because they never really do. They never really pick how they're going to finance and what they need to do and how it's going to work until they found the house that the money's really attached to. Right. So what really needs to happen is, is you have to be prepared for all of them. So for example, if I know that we're working with somebody that, that, um, that doesn't have more than, let's say payment budget is they could afford a million dollar loan. Mm Mm-hmm. But their cash doesn't allow them to afford a million dollar loan because they don't have, say, 20% to put down on that. Let's say that's their target number, right? Right. Well, then we know definitively that I've got to tell you, the realtor, keep them out of Spotsylvania County. And it's not you have to keep them out. They have to understand, and they will. If you go into Spotsylvania County, you've blown your budget. And it's not your payment budget. You just don't have the cash you're comfortable using to get you there. Right. So stay out of Spotsylvania. Just generally speaking, uh, before we shift to the the other topic, I just wanted to do kind of a quick fire on a couple other things. Um, financing a land purchase, just if you know, if we're if someone is listening and they just want to buy a hunk of land, a lot at Lake Anna, yeah, you know, how how different is that from you know buying a resale home? Uh, it's a lot different, but it's also sounds kind of weird. It's also very similar. Right. Okay, it's still money. The, op- the opportunities uh, present themselves for potentially more creative financing mm-hmm. purely because the per- the purchase prices on land are a lot lower than if you've already got a house on it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the the primary way that I recommend people do it is through equity on a place they already own if they have equity. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, You can self-finance. So you've got an opportunity based on retirement accounts to potentially borrow up to $50,000 out of your retirement account. Mm-hmm. If you and a spouse do that and you have a $90,000 piece of land, you can make a cash offer. And the interest goes back into your 401k. So nice creative way to do it. Or there's traditional land loans. And land loans... Um, They're their know, own beast. Yeah, they are. And you know what? Um, we do them in conjunction with construction. Mm-hmm. But I have a you know I have a really close referral source that I do all my land loans with. And when I say I, I refer the land loans to this gentleman because he does a great job with them. And then mm-hmm. inevitably we roll that into a construction loan and then right. that construction loan converts to a permanent. So the process, there's still extreme accountability. I know I can refer the right people, but typically for a land loan, if you're going to buy it and you need to use traditional land loan money, mm-hmm. you really should plan that you've got 20% down. You should plan you're going to get a 20 year amortization and you should plan that you're going to have a five year adjustable or maybe a five year balloon. And a balloon payment means, and an adjustable means the adjustable side after five years, that fixed rate becomes adjustable based mm-hmm. on indexes. The balloon means five years from now it pops and you mm-hmm. owe all the money. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect when you're going to roll it into a construction loan. Right. Right. If you're going to build. Right. You know, but the idea is plan 20%. Um, so your down payment amount yeah. is, is going to be the percentage is going to be higher than if you're just buying, you know, a primary residence. Right. Um, but something comparable to if you're buying an investment property, 20, yeah. 25%, yeah. sometimes 30%. Um, okay. Okay. 
Um, if I own an investment property and I want to sell it and use that money to purchase another investment property, you know, there's a process called the 1031 exchange yeah. sometime. Could you just briefly define kind of what that is and, and how it works just so the listeners know that this product is, 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 is available and some of the tax advantages to it? Yeah. So basically what you're, it's, it's also called a like kind exchange. The 1031 mm-hmm. just comes from the form. Okay, the mm-hmm. IRS form. Right. So what happens is, is you are exchanging a like-kind property, a property that's purely investment for another property that is going to be investment. Uh, the th- and, and so what it does is it defers the tax. Because okay? normally when you sell a property, it's a taxable event, and I'm going to owe Uncle Sam money. On, on the capital gains. On the gain. On the gains, right? So And then the gains are dictated based on long-term and short-term. And then, you know, then there's some considerations. This is where a great CPA and, and accounting mm-hmm. method comes in, like how much work have you put into it, et cetera. Because then you get, for the for the maintenance costs and the things that you've done, you will get a step, what's called a step up in basis. And so that will help defer some of that um, that potential capital gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that 1031 then, as a result, rolls profit from one house um, gains into another home. The thing is, is you're not allowed to touch that money. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not an attorney, not a CPA, but you're not allowed to touch the money. So the money is handled by an attorney. And then that attorney, you have a specified period of time. Um, I believe it's, I think it's three months. I think it's three months to identify. Um, so don't quote me on this yet, but I think it's three months to identify on, on the next property. It might be six that you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. And then you have a specified period of time that you have to close on it. So mm-hmm. I think it's three and six, but we can look up the rule. Anyway, um, so once that timeline is, has surpassed, if you don't have a property identified, you've got a taxable event. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that property closed in that time frame, you've got a taxable event. Now, currently, capital gains tax really, they haven't, the rates as of right now, they really haven't changed for quite some period of time. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that probably is changing, or or certainly there are entities within the government that want that number to change and become significantly more expensive. So it's really not a terrible number right now, long-term capital gains. Uh, short-term is pretty expensive. Um, so there is there is a thought around, okay, we'll just pay the piper, take your money, and do what you want to with it, um, and, but pay the lower tax rate while you can now. You cannot, however, do it on a second home. So if it's been classified as non-investment, if it's been classified as a home that you've enjoyed, mm-hmm. 1031 doesn't apply. And you also can't then- be an investment. And you also can, by the IRS rule, again, you know, you can read, you can Google it. Yep. But uh, my understanding is then you're also not allowed in any form or capacity to occupy that home. So it has to be a home that is 100% occupied by somebody else, whether short-term or long-term. And the I believe the letter of the, the IRS rule says, if you occupy it, then you have- voided that right for the mm-hmm. 1031. So those are just things to talk about. This gotcha. But so to the investors out there who are looking to upgrade, yeah, just know that there is, there is a vehicle out there that you can, you can use to sell one property an investment property and use that money to purchase another one or multiple or multiple and potentially avoid some taxes. Yeah, exactly. It's so once again, you know, the statement holds true, which we haven't talked about on this podcast yet, but the tax code was written for the informed because there's two types of taxpayers in this country. There's the informed and there's the uninformed. Mm-hmm. Guess who pays the most tax? The uninformed. Mm-hmm. So get informed. Ding, ding. Okay. Um, so that was all topic one. 
second topic I want to talk about is, again, this rule that was just enacted a couple of days ago. Uh, for anybody listening, a couple of days ago means May 1, 2023. And the rule, which I early dis- earlier described as a zany rule, uh, is a rule that the federal government, specifically the uh, FHFA, has imposed uh, that relates to the pricing of um, home loans, mortgage loans. Mm-hmm. And it seems to, at first glance, and I'd love to hear from you, uh, to uh, to punish with higher fees uh, some of the people who have great or exceptional credit. And um, at the other end, people with poor credit, it, it seems to re- reward them, um, you know, with lower pricing or lower fees, um, assumingly in an effort to help some folks get into the market, uh, which is a wonderful goal. Um, but this has been a very controversial topic over the last you know six months or so. The last month, it's gotten a lot of attention because of the approaching date. And then May 1, you know, it's, it's sure. now, it's now active, but, um, so that as a backdrop, um, why don't you just take a moment and in uh, and in better terms, and I just described it, maybe just a- accurately, but but simply describe what this new rule is. Yes, I appreciate it, and it um, you did a good job. Honestly, you did a, you did a you did a good job there. So I'd I'd hire you, okay. Right, but I don't think after today you have any better. desire to do my to do what I do, right? <laughs> Never. Never. Um, okay. So first, before I do that, let me take you back to April of two thousand and eight and explain what this is. Okay. Okay. So in layman's terms, this is effectively a mortgage tax that was created. It is a mandatory tax for all right now to, or in two thousand in two thousand eight. Okay, so back so in two thousand eight. So back in the federal government created a tax. Well, um, it wasn't the federal government? So it was FHFA, which is which is part okay, of the federal government. So it is. Which then your point is, is it's not legislated. Well, it's and it's the oversight arm, if you will, mm-hmm. of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which interestingly enough are quasi corporations publicly traded, and so what are they? That's kind of been the question. What are they? Both, right? Okay. So, so in 2008, we had this thing called the, uh, oh, the housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Where the common thought was the mortgage industry almost single-handedly bankrupt the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mortgages went bad. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac investors as well had lost money. We're losing money. And so they, they were trying to figure out they were becoming insolvent, right? If they weren't insolvent or maybe they were just below their comfort level. Who knows really what the magic story was. But the idea is they said, whoa, we had no idea that these mortgages are, are risky. So what we're going to do in order to become solvent again and mm-hmm. right the ship mm-hmm. is we're going to start charging risk-based fees mm-hmm. for perceived risk on a mortgage. Things like investment property became more expensive things like expensive uh, in what way? In, in, in like rate went up cost went up okay so like we're going to add cost based on risk okay and you got to keep in mind in the mortgage industry cost up front could also equate to rate increase okay um it doesn't so have to increased rates or fees that i pay at the closing table correct okay yeah so then these these risks, um, these risk assessments started to come out. And so this temporary mortgage tax that was started in 2008. Mm-hmm. Temporary. Temporary. Right. <laughs> is still temporary. But right. it feels right. a little more permanent now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 15 years and later. And oh, it turns out the only thing that was temporary about it was the fact that the fee basis was going to 
change. So the fee base was, was temporary and then it changed and then it changed again and then it changed again. Mm-hmm. And every single time, I will say this, every single time with the exception of this, it's gotten more expensive. Mm-hmm. This change, okay, which occurred, um, made it more expensive for some, less expensive for others. And we'll talk about that. But basically, um, there was a large change that occurred in 2022. And January of 2020, this, by the way, they sneak this stuff in. This was a change that occurred. And other than the mortgage industry sort of griping about it and the clients, the purchasers definitely complaining about it, there really wasn't a whole lot of other information that was sort of put out there. Mm -hmm. But in January-ish of 2022, second homes became priced like investment property. So we talked about that a little earlier. What was, so think of it this way. There was a disparity before between the two. Right, so let's just assume. So a $100,000 loan would have at the time let's just say would have cost you $250 because it was a second home. Mm -hmm. Okay. So primary residence, it would cost you nothing. Mm -hmm. Second home, it would have cost you $250 Mm -hmm. and an investment property uh, with say 20% down probably would have cost you about uh, $2,000. This is a one-time fee. One-time fee. A fee that you pay at the settlement. Right. Exactly. Points. Think of it like they're points. Okay. Okay? Now the second home, that same scenario, that same $100,000 now costs you um, $4,125. So I'm kind of wondering where everybody was in January of last year when that one occurred and everybody was up in arms, right? That's kind of a big jump to go from 250 bucks to four grand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I share some of the changes of the numbers with you today, they're gonna make they're gonna make the numbers from today, that four thousand dollar number is gonna make today look insignificant. Mm-hmm. Okay. The big change occurred then. They snuck that one by on everybody. Nobody complained. Then Then is in January of last of twenty two. Okay. Okay. Now keep in mind that's for ten percent down on a second home. Blah blah blah. There's a couple other aspects to it, Mm -hmm. but that's the difference, right? Two hundred fifty bucks to four grand is a big change. Okay. And that's when we were telling all of our clients your your closing costs are going to be significantly increasing. Right. That was at the turn of the year, half a percent. Right. Right. Now let's talk about the change that just occurred. Effective two days ago. Effective two days ago, May 1st. Effective May 1st. Right. But keep in mind, that has nothing to do with the client's actual pricing. What it has to do with, if you read it, this is where, again, the media is one. They're two two months late to the party, maybe Mm -hmm. three months late to the party, um, and clearly only has an interest in creating conflict and, you know, we'll call it stirring the pot. Mm -hmm. So here's what's missing from the commentary that's been issued so far. All of this pricing, all these changes that we'll talk about in a minute, costs go up, costs go down, were, st- were in lenders' pricing sometime minimum in March mm-hmm. because it takes anywhere from, say, 30 to 45 days to close a loan. So if I did your mortgage to start today and it was March 1st, well, by mid-April, we're closed, okay? Mm-hmm. My bank or mortgage company, or I'm a broker shop and it has to be delivered, whatever that is, somebody has to deliver that money. And by the way, this only affects Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac money. This has no impact on FHA, VA, USDA, and a, a jumbo money, no this direct is, impact. This is only conventional mortgages. Conventional loans. Yes. Yes. So this rule that went in only impacts <clears throat> conventional loans. And it impacts it whether it's primary residence, second home, or investment property. Right. Okay. So, so that pricing was going to be charged to a bank like ours mm-hmm. on May 1st when we deliver that product to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
Mm-hmm. So now we never, as an industry, we never really know how long is it going to take to what we call to basically bundle mm-hmm. that mortgage into other loans that look similar to it and sell this block of money to Fannie and Freddie. So Fannie and Freddie say, well, if you deliver that block of money and it's purchased after May 1st, so what, will it sit on their desk for 10 days before they purchase it? We don't really know. Right. So if it happens after May 1st, is Fannie Mae going to be incentivized to just hold their packages and wait till after May 1st so they can collect the fees? Probably. Mm-hmm. They raised the fees to begin with. If that's the case, all this was in the pricing in March. So everybody is all upset about, literally everybody right now is running around the country screaming about something that's already in the interest rates and has been in the interest rates since March. And, and the reason you're saying that is because to be compliant when May 1 rolls around, the lenders you have know, to had, pay the- had, to, had to build it into their pricing months ago. Correct, because we have right. to deliver that, and it has to be purchased by Fannie and Freddie by that point. So the consumer, your point here is the consumers started feeling this pinch. Buyers started feeling this pinch a couple of months ago. Yeah. So do you want to know ship, who the ship is already saved? Do you want to know who really has the complaint here? Hmm. The person that got pre-approved in January but didn't find a property until March first, mm-hmm. and they thought They're rates changed. They thought rates went up. Rates didn't go up. The pricing went up. Right. And the, and you didn't find a property until after that was already in the pricing engine mm-hmm. and the, the pricing fee went up. Correct. Because all of these things, no matter what, all of these things, banks that lend money for mortgages are for profit companies M- minus one, which, which is really like a state bond program. That's uh, again, a topic for another. That's like Virginia housing. Okay. So they're for profit companies. So for profit companies don't stay in business by losing money. Banks don't like to pay fees. Banks like to charge fees. So the reality is, is that if you're delivering a mortgage-backed security and the, and we know, let's say hypothetically, I give um, a $300,000 loan to you and I know that instead of us making, say, $5,000 when we sell that loan to Fannie Freddie, that I'm going to make two because your loan is subject to a 1% cost increase because of some variable, right? Credit score and loan to value-wise. Then as early as possible, that pricing is already going to be built into the actual mechanism sure. so that if it isn't charged and we deliver it earlier, there's more profit for a bank. But we're also secure in that if it is delivered and it's after that date, we're at least covered. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, is that the time to have complained about this, and we were, because there is one component of these adjustments that the mortgage industry started. I mean, we com- we actually lobbied through the MBA, the Mortgage Bankers Association. We lobbied to have these repealed. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't as, a, as an entity, as a group, we didn't feel that it was good as a whole. There's both good and bad with this, but mm-hmm. we didn't think there was enough good um, in order to accept the bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the piece that we wanted to lobby for is a change regarding debt to income ratio. And what mm-hmm. we'll do is we'll probably talk through a scenario about how these numbers changed mm-hmm. so that people understand, because I did tell you the number's nowhere near as impactful negatively as it was when they added that second home overlay last year so take a take a moment and pause and describe the change what what is the rule so basically um for lack of a better way to 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 phrase it you know you and i have talked about this it's kind of like uh it's kind of like a robin hood methodology okay so people that are not necessarily the ideal charter client for fannie mae and freddie mac which are second with a low so, well, so they're, so let's talk. So their ideal client mm-hmm. who their, their charter says they really need to be helping first time home buyers, lower credit score, lower down payment. That's, that's an area where they have been woefully deficient in providing affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So in order to fix that, but still remain solvent, 
they needed to charge more to people that in the end are not their ideal client. Mm -hmm. And so that would be an investment property client. That would be a second home client. That would be a high credit score with reasonable down payment. Mm -hmm. So that individual is paying more so that the individual that is the first time home buyer that doesn't have the best credit score, that doesn't have much in the way of down payment can pay less. Now, if we stop there, that's an insightful statement, mm -hmm. right? Because as somebody that owns a home and would fall into the upper tier category, both in down payment, credit score, et cetera, the last thing that I want to know is, is that I'm being, we'll call it legislated to some extent, taxed into doing something that I don't really want to do. If I wanted to help somebody buy a house, I'd go give them a couple thousand dollars. I could right. buy a house. I don't want to be forced into it. And then, so then there's the bigger picture that we'll probably get into. But what it is, is it's taking these things called loan level pricing adjustments. And anybody watching this podcast can go Google LLPA Fannie Mae right there on the chart. You got one right there in front of you as well, mm -hmm. right there on the chart. You'll see the one that was effective May 1st. You'll see the one that was effective before May 1st. Okay. Mm -hmm. But really we might as well have put a date on that of say March 1st. Right. At the end of the day, you could see the differences. And, and I, you know, like I walk through this with every single one of our clients because they need to understand what they're paying and why, because in that chart, there's magic. There's actually ways for us to decrease the cost of your loan by manipulating the data on that chart. So here's a prime example. This is this is kind of silly, but um, it behooves people like it would it would potentially benefit you mm -hmm. to leave a spouse off of a more if you were a first time home buyer mm -hmm. to leave a spouse off of a mortgage application mm -hmm. if you're both first time home buyers or you're a first time home buyer. Mm -hmm. Even if you had a lower credit score, mm -hmm. just to have the opportunity to then waive all of these pricing adjustments. Mm -hmm. And so there's some there's some actual magic that we can so there's use. There's some strategy that you can lawfully employ to take advantage to some of these changes. Yes, but first you have to understand the chart. Yeah. How the chart works. Yeah. Exactly. Which means you need to talk to a mortgage broker who really knows. You need to talk to somebody that really, knows some stuff. Really knows, really knows what they're, what they're doing. Right. So this is the chart. I'll put it in front of you. Yeah. That's the one that you're, you're referring to. And, yep. and we'll, um, well, during the podcast, you know, we'll, we'll flash here a copy of it, but, um, just take, you know, two minutes and, you know, kind of walk through, um, you know, just, the chart. just explain what it is, yeah. what we're looking at there. So this is just a fancy, it's a graph, it's a grid, right? Mm -hmm. X-axis, Y-axis. So what you've got is you've got loan to value across the top. Mm -hmm. So the top represents the top, the headers, right? How much I'm borrowing. Well, it represents how much you're borrowing as a percentage of your purchase price. Price, purchase price. So for example, the magic number that everybody thinks is I need to get to what for down payment? 20%. Mm -hmm. 20%. 20%. So that would be an 80% loan to value. Well, that falls in the bracket of 75.01 to 80%. That's that tier all the way down. Mm -hmm. Then what we have to look at is credit score. And we want to see, okay, well, I'm a perfect borrower, okay? Because mindset is, by the way, perfect borrower has been redefined. You know what it used to be? What credit score it used to be? Hmm. What do you think? Uh, Just as of April, uh, end of April, what was perfect borrower? Uh, over 740, Seven, over 750. 740 and above was perfect mm -hmm. borrower. Mm -hmm. Know what it is today? What, over 780? 780. Yeah. Okay, great. So now we know now there's a difference. So for all of you, you know, people that are out there that are watching this that are very proud of your 781, it actually matters now. Mm -hmm. As of three days ago or Friday of last week, it didn't matter. So today it matters. Okay. 
So when we look at that number, we can see that at, say, it a It matters, seven, but it may not matter in the way you hope it matters. No, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> it might hurt you. Well, it, it's, it still helps you more than it does to have a 740, but it does. it's it's worse than it was uh, end of last week. Okay? Right, 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 right. So here's how that works. So a 740 to 759 credit score with 20% down is an adjustment of 0.875%. If you pull up the graph or the graph is in the podcast, you'll see that. Mm-hmm. So that 0.875% is not an adjustment to interest rate. That's an adjustment to loan cost. Think points. Mm-hmm. So on a $100,000 loan, that loan is going to cost you $875 at the closing table for that adjustment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's an $875 increase or an $875 fee. We're not talking about increase right now. This All we're talking about, this is the fee, the, right? This is the $100,000 loan. 0.875 on the, on the loan amount. amount being borrowed. Gotcha. And as a, as a, as a simple guy, we'll stay to a hundred thousand dollar loan, even though there aren't many of those out there anymore, but at a hundred thousand, that equates to $875 at the 740 credit score. So on the old chart that we looked at, you've got it under your computer oh, there if you went for reference. Yeah. So, so on the old one. chart that we looked at, if we look at the same box, that same box at 740, 80% was 0.5%. Okay. So it costs 0.375% more today to have a 740 credit score than it did on April 30th. Again, assuming that date, right? Assuming that was the actual high water mark, boop, it transitioned over and now that's where sure, it sure. works. Okay. So it's three hundred and seventy-five dollars more, assuming a hundred hundred thousand dollar loan amount. Every hundred grand in loan amount, it costs you three hundred and seventy-five dollars more. Now, I'm not in the habit of wanting to pay for things that I don't have to. I'm not in the habit of of being forced into paying more. But would it be cool if I gave you the adverse side of it? So doing that, increasing that fee, because the bulk of the people that are borrowing money that are using conventional money are in that upper tier. Mm-hmm. So they're actually charging more. Because of even though it's less, it's less than what I'll show is the discount to people with low credit scores. Mm-hmm. That dollar amount transfer, right? The point three seven five adjustment. It's just because there's a there's a bulk of the population that fits that, right. so they're collecting more. You know, right, smaller right. amounts from more people equals more money. So in doing so, right? There's also less blowback or whatever. But in doing that, what was able to happen is they were able to dramatically decrease the cost to a lower credit score borrower. Now, what that theoretically should do is it should open up more affordability. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because lowering the cost, knowing the upfront point cost, could also translate into a lower rate because Mm -hmm. you can roll cost into the actual loan, Mm -hmm. into the interest rate. Mm -hmm. Lowering the interest rate improves affordability. So we did a scenario, for example, earlier, Mm -hmm. okay? And so an individual... And and uh, and we'll have this report actually up at some point. Before we jump to that, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. So you just you just highlighted for everyone the box, yeah, right. The box, and yep. you showed the change for someone with say seven forty, right? A good credit score. Could you go through the same exercise for someone down at the other end? Yeah, lower and show score. how the change. Yeah. So let's just let's tackle this uh, the six forty. Okay? okay. And by the way, Grayson, I can't think of a single time in the last five years that I have taken an individual that had a 640 or 660 credit score mm-hmm. and placed them into a conventional loan product when they had access to one of the other government insured programs. So sure. this change legitimately does change the availability of that money to people at lower credit score brackets. So the change, for example, um, that we have before, right? So this is the before picture. So 640 credit score. Now keep in mind, first time home buyer traditionally has less than down payment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm not gonna use the 3%, let's use the 5% number. So you have 5% down, that money can come from borrow from retirement, it's cash you've saved, it's mom and dad helping you out, gift mm-hmm. money, whatever. So with 5% down at 640, if you're looking at the chart, 5% down, you're gonna pay a fee of 2.75%. Under the new rule. That's the old rule. That's okay. the old rule, 2.75%. Okay. Okay. So Under the old right. pre-May 1. Correct, so same exact loan that the person with the 740 score was getting mm-hmm. and they were paying $500 for on 100,000, mm-hmm. that first time home buyer or that person that fits that requirement is gonna pay $2,750. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I know which one I wanna pay. I'd rather pay 500 bucks than 2,750. Right. So now let's look at how that number changed because we know the high credit score went to $875. Mm-hmm. The lower credit score went to $2,000. So for a $375 increase to the upper tier, mm-hmm. you had a $750 decrease to the lower tier. Mm-hmm. And so that money might on, not- on a, Assuming again- $100,000 100, loan. loan. Right. And that money might not seem earth shattering, right? But when you're in a super limited budget, it is a big number. Loans can get done and not get done. Purchases can get made that way. Or if you're buying a three or $400,000 house, we're not talking about thousands of dollars less. Correct. At the it, closing table. Exactly. On people with limited which is, budgets. Which, as you pointed out, can make a big difference. Correct. Now, there's one other really, really cool piece. This is the other part where I alluded to this earlier. So let's say you are a first-time home buyer. Mm-hmm. Well, in you know HUD, Housing and Urban Development, the department issues what's called an AMI guideline every single year. The AMI is area median income. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is the because they use that for all kinds of different federal benefits. There's you know they use this number for tons right. of stuff. What's the median income in this given geographic area? Correct. So now back to you know the first version, topic one: right. Spotsylvania, Orange County, Louisa County, Albemarle County. They're all different, mm-hmm. right? Different areas are different, right? Mm -hmm. Even in the same county, you can have different numbers. Mm -hmm. So now, let's assume that you're a first-time homebuyer, which by definition, Grayson, means you haven't owned a home in the last three years. That's actually a first-time homebuyer. So you haven't owned a home in the last three years, and you have a 640 credit score. Mm -hmm. You got 5% you can put down. Your area median income is, say, $90,000. And we do your qualification and we find out that you actually make about 81. You make good money, but you're not above the area median income limit. Mm -hmm. You remember that $2,000 I just talked about as a fee? Mm -hmm. We can now waive it. Now you don't have any fee. If you fall under that, if your true total income falls under the the median income for that area. Exactly. Now, what does that do? That saves $2,000, two points. Right. But let me tell you what the two points means, because this is where the magic really happens. And this is why, again, I think there's good and bad with this with this change. So traditionally, 1% of fee represents a quarter percent of interest rate. Now, I say traditionally because we're in a market right now where nothing makes sense. It's like we're in Alice in Wonderland, okay? Mm-hmm. But when we come out of this Alice in Wonderland type of environment, we'll mm-hmm. go back to a 1% typically drives a quarter percent of interest rate. Mm-hmm. Well, we have 2% there. of fee that's being charged, that's being waived. Mm -hmm. So for the same cash to close for the borrower, we can now move the interest rate potentially a half a percent lower. Mm -hmm. 1% of interest rate is 11% of qualification. So half a percent of interest rate is five and a half percent more budget. Mm -hmm. So if the borrower's budget was 350,000, I should have done an easy number. If the borrower's budget was $300,000. It gets bigger. 
it now goes to basically $317,000 as their budget. Now, let's think about this. You're a home seller, and I walk in, I'm the mortgage guy, and I tell you, I'm really sorry, Grayson, it's going to cost you $375 for extra, every $100,000 of house that you are buying today, okay? I know that doesn't make you happy, but that's the federal change that occurred, and there's no way really around that, okay? Well, yeah, you're kind of burned up because you're going to go buy a $500,000 house with the sale proceeds from your current home, and um, that's going to, as a result, cost you about, what, 1500 bucks, 1600 bucks. Mm-hmm. But then I tell you the good news, though, Grayson, is that because of that same change that occurred, the buyer that's buying your $325,000 house can now afford it because as a first-time home buyer, your $1,500 afforded them the ability to buy an extra almost $20,000 of house price. Mm-hmm. So you had a choice. You could have your $1,500 back and you could lose almost twenty grand on the negotiated sale price. Mm-hmm. Or you could just take the twenty grand and pay the extra $1,500 and kind of go away with it. So the reality is, is there's a bigger picture for us to look at, but mm-hmm. the point is, it is a slippery slope because we have forced change that's occurring. But again, depending on how we look at it, it could be good, it could be bad. But it does benefit the first-time home buyer the most, without question. The the winner, winner, chicken dinner in this scenario is the first-time home buyer that falls at and below the area median income limit. Because those fees can be totally waived. Yeah, and we're talking and about it bumps up their budget. And we're also talking about people that traditionally have less money to play with anyway. So they're they're actually in a lot of cases they're kept out of the market for the reasons we talked about earlier. One is cash and two is budget. Mm-hmm. This fixes potentially both of those problems or at least it aids them in both of those problems. So this has been so controversial that uh, the director of FHFA issued a statement uh, in an email last week, um, kind of coming to uh, the defense of this decision, sure. of, of, of her decision. Yeah, and um, you know, toward the end, she made a pretty interesting statement, I thought, but it, I, I think it, it, it supports your, your interpretation of what's going on here. She said, the updated pricing framework will further the safety and soundness of the enterprises, which will help them better achieve their mission, which I think there she's talking about um, Fannie and Freddie. But she says they will provide reliable liquidity to the market while also providing some more targeted support for credit-worthy borrowers limited by income or wealth. Credit-worthy borrowers. I guess she's she's saying someone who's just meeting the baseline threshold of you know, 620, 640, just, just getting into the door. But it, but it, it, it seems pretty clear it's, it's, it is targeted, yeah, to to move some of the money out of one group into another group to open doors that were otherwise closed. Now, that said, I told you I was going to play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't do that if I'm only on one side of the aisle, mm-hmm. right? And that's not the political aisle, but what I'm referring to here. Yeah. So here's 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 what's not said. By the way, that clearly is a press release for investors. That doesn't say anything to the average Joe, right? Right, right. Okay. So here's what's not said there. So earlier this year, Fannie Mae and uh, Fannie Mae issued, and which is through the FHFA, but they issued um, these things called mortgage e-letters, or these these basically these statements. These, mm-hmm. and they have to give us updates on how the algorithm is functioning. Mm-hmm. They don't tell us how the algorithm is going to make decisions. Otherwise, we could reverse engineer, right? As a mortgage engineer, mm-hmm. I could reverse engineer approvals. I could mm-hmm. say, oh well, it doesn't like this variable, so let me change it to that. We can, you know, we can we can get there. By the way, that's part of how we do it, but they just don't tell us what the secret sauce is. Mm -hmm. And they keep changing the secret sauce. 
And here's what they did. They made it incredibly difficult. They tightened, they tightened the belt around low credit score borrowers tighter than they probably ever have. So even though they reduced all of these fees and they mm-hmm. said as a first time home buyer, these are the things that you can do. Like we're going to reward you. And if you, if you meet the area median income limit and you're below, you're not going to pay these fees and we're going to charge everybody else more mm-hmm. as a result. Mm-hmm. Well, you would think that they would lend the money, right? They would securitize the money, which means their algorithm would approve the actual loan files. Mm-hmm. But before they made any of these changes, they dramatically constricted the the algorithm. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly difficult to get any of those loans actually approved. Why? Well, because what's the actual like when you when you think of this, right? Like I know wonderful people mm-hmm. that have six twenty and six forty credit scores. Of course. But the reason they have 620 and 640 credit scores is because things get paid not on time. Right. You've got low down payment. So realistically, what's the credit risk to a low down payment program? It's very, very high. It's higher risk. The high risk of default. So what they did so they, was- So they raised the bar. So entry, it seems easier, but it's still more difficult to get the- to Well, get the loan, to some extent- Yeah. So to some extent, it's sort of like- I mean, it's sort of like, look how great I am in the right hand. Right. And in the left hand, they're punching you in the gut. Right. right? right. But look how we're, we're still going to make look how hard. awesome I are. Yeah. I am. Right. Like I'm raising this. So to some extent, like the skeptic in me, mm-hmm. which the older I get, the more skepticism I have is like, okay, well on paper, the things I just shared with you conceptually are phenomenal, but it, when I actually sit down and I run a loan file, that's a 620, 640 or a 660 credit score. It's really hard to get an approval. Mm -hmm. It's really, really hard. So then we end up the same route anyway, except now who looks all rosy and shiny. She's like, I tried. Mm -hmm. I I tried to do this, right? But they're a big credit risk. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no doubt they're a big credit risk. So really what you did to, you know, the other side of the aisle, the skeptic in me is like, you just basically gave us an excuse as to why it was totally okay for us to pay a little bit more. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the theory is it'll be easier to get somebody else in a house to support values. Now, hopefully that's true. And what I would say is this. We have no choice on these fees. These fees are now there. Yeah. Okay. And so- For all conventional loans. For all conventional loans. Yeah. So what we really need to be pushing for as an industry, your industry and my industry, MBA and NRA, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. National- so, No. National <laughs> Association. Association. <laughs> NAR. Well, we just right? lost half the podcast on that one. So- <laughs> Not the the NRA. We're not talking about (laughs) the National National Association of Realtors. There we go. Edit that one out. But the NAR. National Association of Realtors. Need to be lobbying now to open up the credit portals so that it's easier to actually get some of these loans approved. It's like, okay, great. If you're going to do this, now show me how many more loans you're actually securitizing at those lower brackets. Mm -hmm. And if you're not actually securitizing any loans, then give us our money back. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what we should be saying. Yep. But that's not, that's honestly, that's not commentary I've heard anywhere else because you know, you know, who's, who's talking about this is either one, you know, loan officers that need something to talk about. Right. Right. Or two, it's the media or, or politicians. Or politicians and frankly, brag- bragging. they don't understand any of this stuff anyway, because right. most of them have never even gotten a mortgage. They've just paid cash for properties. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. And I don't know if there's, and you were alluding to this, I think, but it'll be interesting to see. 
I don't know if enough time has passed, but it'll be interesting to see in six months or a year if, you know, the loan approval rates, you know, have, have increased. I don't know if you'll be able to, if we'll be It'll able be inf- to, it's to, public information. To, to, yeah. to assess that. But so f- folks who would have otherwise not been able to qualify or would have been priced out. Yeah. In other words, the extent to which the door has been cracked and now um, some folks have the benefit of coming in. Did it really help them? Well, or or right. were they denied the loan anyway? Right. In the end. Did, do we get approvals using the algorithms we have to use? And if so, mm-hmm. then the program will work. Then these changes are. But if not. If yeah. not, then it was just a fancy way of saying. It's lipstick on a pig. It's, it's not. a fancy way of saying, look to the left while I'm doing something over mm-hmm. here to your right. Mm-hmm. Right. Sleight of hand. It's the old. It's financial magic. So it'll be really interesting. And by the way, that is information that we see. And you know what? I'll know it. And a, a, a day-to-day basis because... Yeah, you'll see it go through. Because I'm running it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh, well, look at that. Here's yeah. another 640 yeah. that we can't get approved because they're too much of a credit risk. Mm-hmm. So no matter how much of a benefit you give them, it's kind of like when my I have I have people that call me up and they say, you know, let's just assume interest rates today are 6%. And they call me and say, I got a quote for uh, three and a half. <laughs> I'm like, well, if it's legit, you should probably take it because that's like cheaper right. than anything else on the planet right. at all. It's lo- even lower than a savings account rate. But just keep in mind, the mortgage that doesn't close, even as low as the interest rate is, is worth nothing. Right. So right. the idea is, is this is all worth nothing, except it probably does build their war chest more if all they're doing is taxing mm-hmm. the rich or the upper qualification. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I certainly understand and support the goal, you know, of opening the door of accessibility to the housing market wider. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to, e- even though it's a bit, but to punish one to reward the other, especially when the one you're punishing is someone who is, is to use your words, paid their bills on time. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. It doesn't sit well. I think that there are other ways, other, uh, other more acceptable ways, less controversial ways. Um, to accomplish and serve that same goal. Right. Well, and what's really not going to sit well is if in the end it turns out the entire didn't do anything. stated goal didn't work anyway. Yeah, because, it failed. Because they didn't open up the credit box. Right. I mean, yeah. If it does work, though, I would think the effect it would have would be to, to put more buyers, and I think this is what they're hoping, more buyers into the real estate market. Which is probably be a good thing. I mean, I know housing supply is is low right now, but I think it would be good to have to have more buyers because I'm speaking from experience with the way with the way that interest rates have been behaving and where they're at right now. There are fewer buyers than there were, you know, over the sure. last over the last few years. Yeah. So I think it could certainly help to have some additional buyers in the market. Yeah. Um. I, I, what do you th- What do you see happening as a result of this over the next year or two? More people applying. Mm, no, I, 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 th- I don't think that these things are really going to affect application. I think we'll probably, I mean, again, I'm a skeptic. I think that we'll probably see um, minimal impact mm-hmm. um, to, uh, I mean, I just don't, I just don't trust the, I just, I just don't trust them. So I think we'll see minimal impact, meaning I don't think it'll really do a whole lot for helping that first time home buyer unless they are willing to open up the credit box, but opening the credit box box increases the risk. And if you increase the risk because you're decreasing the, the risk offset cost, doesn't that defeat the entire purpose of a loan level pricing adjustment to begin with? These things were created to offset risk. 
So here we are saying, okay, well, let's increase risk, mm-hmm. right? Charge less for riskier loans. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem like it matches up. So I think what'll happen is, is I think um, it'll be business as usual. I think there will be opportunities where, you know, we might slide a couple in, right, that work and that'll be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's going to have a big splash or a huge impact. And I think what the other part that I want to share about these adjustments is the timing of them is incredibly suspect. And it's suspect because not long before this announcement came out, FHA came out with the announcement that they were decreasing their mortgage insurance cost. You see, FHA is sitting on more cash right now, and FHA is a pooled insurance program. So it's just like Veterans Administration. The buyer pays into a pool of insurance. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, it's like a co-op almost, so it's self-insured. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so they they're sitting on so much cash that they had to reduce their premiums because they have to slow down the amount of premiums they're collecting because they can't have as much cash as they currently have. Mm-hmm. So when they did that, they made home ownership more affordable again, and, mm-hmm. the, and the mortgage insurance premium went from 0.85 down to 0.55 or 5. I can't remember right now. So it dropped by about half on the mortgage insurance cost or pretty close, right? So FHFA is sitting around saying, oh, well, we look like a bunch of sharks. What are we going to do? Well, I guess we should make the homeownership more affordable to the lower credit score, the competition that would normally be with FHA. Okay, so let's take a minute, and I think you prepared a chart that can show the impact of the rules, on, yeah. on and you, you use two hypothetical buyers, one buyer or mortgage applicant who has a 640 uh, uh, credit score, and then a buyer has a 740 credit score. Right. So we can just see the different types of impact, benefit or not, that they have. So if we look at the chart, let's look at the 640 buyer first. Okay. Um, and we're assuming a $350,000 purchase price, right? 5% down? Correct. Yeah. So it looks like under the new rules, they get an interest rate benefit. Is that right? The interest rate drops. Um, you know, roughly half a percent, maybe a little more. Yeah. So um, I know you guys are probably going to put the the chart up on the screen, but people yeah, can also yeah, access that, that uh, at LLPA Compare. Okay. Com. So LLPACompare.com. L-L-P-A and we'll put that in the notes too. So yeah. So what I did there was I wanted to illustrate what is the real benefit to these changes. And the benefit mm-hmm. really is to affordability and to payment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. in order to achieve that benefit, we've applied the cost savings that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. which is the LLPA cost. Mm-hmm. And we applied that savings to rate, meaning we were able to reduce the rate because the cost is lower. The interest rate went down. Correct. So you could see that on the same house purchase, same purchase price, same loan amount, different mm-hmm. interest rate, the payment dropped by almost $140 a month. That's mm-hmm. that green number at the bottom next to the red zeros. So that's the primary benefit under these rules, under your example, of someone with a 640 interest rate, uh, excuse me, uh, credit score, which is far below you know, what we would consider the, the ideal buyer sure. or the perfect yep. buyer. Their main benefit is a lower interest rate. And their yep. monthly payment drops Correct. as a result. In this example, about 140 bucks. Right. So then the important part, because we talked earlier about how that helps them actually get into the market. The budget. Right. So assuming they're qualified for a $2,821 payment, which is the mm-hmm. first scenario, the old mm-hmm. scenario, every the number that you got to keep in mind, as it is right now, roughly every $10,000 of loan amount mm-hmm. is about $70 of payment. Mm-hmm. So if we have almost $140 a month of payment savings, it really means that for the same payment that that first time home buyer was going to, you know, 
pay for a $350,000 house, mm-hmm. they could now buy a $20,000 more expensive home. Right. Same payment, they can now go to say 370000 as a purchase price. Mm-hmm. So the benefit is in an increasing price environment, which is clearly what we have, Right. this is theoretically then a tool or an actuality. It is a tool provided it can be used. It's a tool that really will for either one, less payment, help people buy the same house mm-hmm. or two for the same payment, buy more home and keep up with market increases. So it, it gotcha. can be a very impactful uh, number. And then if we look over here at the last two columns, this shows the impact of this new rule on a buyer who has a 740 correct or a, a higher one. Correct. Again, we're assuming the same purchase price, down payment, et cetera. It looks like their interest rate does not change. Correct. Correct. Stays the same right yep. at here at 6.5. Yep. And their, uh, looks like their monthly payment amount, of course, would not change. Right. But their cash to close went up. Yes. It looks like by about $1,000. $1,050. Okay. So their cash to close went up. Arguably, they have no benefit to that. And that's that's money that helps to fund what we were just talking about a minute ago. Right. Exactly. The, the, the opening the door, so to speak, uh, to different opportunities for the person with 640. Right. So, and just, just so that everybody, you know, understands the way it would usually work, you're not going to see any interest rate change Mm -hmm. unless you see roughly half a percent of cost adjustment. Mm -hmm. So I told you earlier, you know, 1% of cost is about a quarter percent of rate in a traditional environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So half a percent of cost is about an eighth of a percent in rate. And mortgages really only move at the, say, the increments of roughly 0.125%. Again, traditionally, there's some weird stuff that comes out now, but basically mm-hmm. 0.125. So for that con- for that consumer, that 740 buyer, to move from 600, uh, excuse me, 6.5% to 6375 mm-hmm. they would have to bring another half a percent of their loan amount. So on a $280,000 loan, they'd bring another $1,400 to closing. Mm-hmm. And then traditionally, they're going to get rewarded with an eighth of a percent lower rate because the definition of points, Grayson, is not it's not something any longer that people are like, oh, okay, great. They're, my bank's just trying to make money on me. The reality is, is that they are actual bona fide discount cost, which means you are trading upfront interest for long-term savings. Mm-hmm. You're buying a lower rate. Mm-hmm. But that's usually where you'll see rate movement. So I wanted to explain why did one scenario move rate-wise and the other scenario not move rate-wise? And the answer is because on this chart, when we look at the differences, there was only 0.375% adjustment mm-hmm. to the 740 credit score. Mm-hmm. But there was um, there was about one in a uh, about 1% adjustment, 0.875% adjustment in the other column. Right. So we saw a significant movement rate-wise because of the cost basis, and then we saw no real movement but cash-to-close change based on the 740. So the score. person here who benefits greatly is the buyer with the lower credit score, and in the end, the way that they see what their benefit is is a lower monthly payment due to the lower interest rate. Yep. And then we see arguably no benefit to the buyer with the 740, the higher credit score. And in fact, basically they're paying a $1,000 penalty, higher closing cost, just to help fund this whole operation. Right. And if you look at those amounts, that that equates to exactly what we talked about earlier, which is there's virtually, there's basically 2.8 $100,000 increments in their loan amount, right? And I said $100,000 was going to cost 
$375 and change. Mm-hmm. So if we were to take $375 times 2.8, we get exactly the cost difference between those two. And some people would call this good policy. Some people would call this Robin Hood policy. We'll let the uh, the viewers and the listeners decide <laughs> on their own. But it's <laughs> the way I see it as well. Yeah. If someone watches this and they want to get in touch with you, yeah. where can they follow you on social media or phone number? What's the best way to get in touch awesome, with you? Awesome. Great. So um, Facebook.com slash Andy Zeman team. Andy um, Zeman. Z-E-M-O-N. Z-E-M-O-N. Uh, they can visit andyzeman.com. Or the better thing to do is just go to my calendar, schedulewithandy.com. That way you don't even have to spell Zeman. Schedulewithandy.com. Click any of the buttons that you want. Usually it's just uh, other or new client information. My entire calendar is out there in the... uh, in the metaverse, in the interwebs, <laughs> in the interwebs, in the interwebs, and it's there because that's you know. What for if someone what, wants to send you a text? Where can they text you? Oh yeah, four three four. What's the work number? Four three four 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 three six five five seven. Six. Put five, that on there. Four. M i c k e y m o u s e. Yeah, text message, whatever's fine. You want to get on? Just send me a message. Find me on Facebook. Send me a send me a you know a DM. Cool. Let me know what you need. Legitimately, I mean, we're here. Like I said, just like you and Ashley, this is what I love about you guys is it's so refreshing to work with people that genuinely just want to help people make good decisions. And they're, and, and, you know, that's why I tell people to interview, right? Mm-hmm. Interview because there's a big difference between somebody that wants to help you and somebody that needs to help you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's make true. your own determinations. But I love the fact that you guys, embrace that and you embody that here at the lake and and that's why your clients love you that's why we love you so you guys keep up that work well thanks for coming man i appreciate it thanks grayson